0: Hello and welcome to Pablo's channel Um, Today, the date today is the 24th of October um, 2021 And it's a Sunday And um, it's five past five And I'm reading today Well, yesterday I did start reading this book um, well, let me just, let me just, I've decided, basically, <clears throat> to finish off reading the Dromedon series. For some reason, I read every chapter except for the last one, which was called The Chapel of Ease. Um, and last night, as I say, I started reading it. It's a long um, story. Got halfway through and then I lost it all. <laughs> I've done that a few times, but... It feels a bit like the Mandela experience, you know how they make the patterns and then they cut on purpose, to wipe it away, the sand mandalas, or you know. So you got to see it like that, haven't you? Yeah, you put all the effort in, only to let it go. You know. <laughs> anyway, so. So yeah, so I'm going to read the Chapel of Ease, which is the final chapter of the Dromedon series, the best weird stories of Gerald Heard. So let's go all the way back. I'm I'm, I'm reading this from the uh, dining room in the, which is by the window, looking at the river river estuary, the, um, to the Mersey. It was, I just got, I just had a little walk. I've had a little, nice little walk in the past few days. Um and Been doing a bit of exploring. When I say exploring, New Brighton just kind of going through different little roads and uh, checking them out. Um But down at Wallen Drive area, and uh, Montpelier Crescent. Lovely uh lovely buildings there, really. Um yeah. Oh, so last night I had a nice chat with Dad as well, uh, really explored uh, his the different apart, um, houses he's been to because he's just recently been to London and he took pictures of them all, you know, Drayton Gardens, a, road, a well, Drayton Gardens where Daniel was conceived and I was conceived in a, a road. it was just interesting hearing him uh, saying, you know, how it developed, how he got to live in these different places and Yeah, so I really enjoyed that chat yesterday. Uh, So, yeah. Anyway, let's continue with this. (coughs) It's a long chapter. (coughs) We're going to dive straight into it. I'm going to play Hans Zimmer as the background music because it's only just released a new album and it's got a nice, you know, mysterious uh, sound to it. It's based on the film The Dune, so even better, I I associate... uh, Joel heard of the desert and the depth and all that. So perfect thing to choose, really. Just came at a nick of time. So we're gonna just play that. Um, so yeah, it's coming on now. So here we go. The Chapel of Ease, take two. <laughs> There you go. That's the Hans Zimmer sounds. I think I might put the volume down a little bit. Okay, the Chapel of Ease. Terror's quite different from horror. You agree? Well, I wouldn't have, I don't think, for I don't think I'd ever given any thought to such grisly distinctions. No, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't unless I found out at the same time this further thing about them. Horror's much less awful than terror. You doubt that? Well... I have as little doubt of the one's proposition as the other. Why? Because I had the fullest demonstration of them both. Yes, I'll give you the facts. Perhaps you won't draw my conclusions, but as you'll see, I have a witness of a sort, and one who, as far as character goes, and in general information and intelligence rates, I think, pretty high. Rates, I think, pretty high. Anyhow, the story might interest you. It certainly throws some light on human psychology. I'd come back to Britain from a civil servant post abroad, a moderate case of sick leave. But just when I was ready to ship back, there came the war. I couldn't get my old base, and at home they stood in need of the kind of civil servant knowledge I had. And the early strain of the first path of the war was a real stimulant. You know, of course, that when a war starts, the suicide rate always drops with a slump and the mental homes for the neurotics empty and the nerve doctors for a time have quite a bad belt of business to go through. Till life adjusts and feeds them, as it were, from other fields. Well, to one who had spent a great deal of his administrative life rather on the rim of things and felt he was rather banished. This coming back to a crusading atmosphere was really quite a wonderful experience. We were all friendly, comradely. I was taken in at once in the big office where I was serving as a kind of old friend. I had a lot of expert knowledge that was needed. No one was jealous. And I was given quite a high up post. I found my, team, uh, found my team grand people to work with. Yes, I have to own it. I was glad of the war. Yes, even when the bad raids began in the autumn of 40. All that only made us more of a team. And when we were evacuated and had to open office far away in a western town, in what was called by the odd name, a watering place, but they called it New Brighton a watering place. So, yeah, could have come here. We made our exodus and our provisional settling in with the kind of good humour and comradeship that people find in getting over difficulties with proved friends. Even when the raids began to sweep around and lash at us with their stinging tails, it only made stronger our sense of being together in something as worthwhile as getting people off a sinking ship. Yes, it was a fine atmosphere, but one that, because it was so high-pitched, tended to use itself up. We were cheery but, of course, tense, and the te- tenseness grew. But, no doubt, you know all about that. It may be more to the point, then, to say about myself that i had always been the moderately progressive civil servant. That is to say that, though of course I didn't and couldn't identify myself with any political opinion, I naturally was informed. And I liked those parties and policies which preferred information. In short, had I been free to have what is called political affiliations, I should have been, I'm pretty sure, what was then called was then still called Fabian of a sort. Advance as far and as fast as the facts will take you and aim at getting the economic side of things well worked out. plan the lives of people for them as far as physical supplies go and leave them free if they wish and as they wish to manage their psychological pleasures or problems. It's a doctrine very sympathetic to minds trained to work with blue books, graphs and properly tabulated returns. Inevitably you find you treat that as the whole of life and tend to leave aside its other sides as, at best, a purely private concern. And of very little to you, because you are, and are proud to be, a public servant. The war rather crystallised what till then had been latent convictions with me. It made one able, and indeed our necessity drove one to state one's faith. I found that mine was in the triumph of a free socialism against a fanatical, semi-mystical tyranny. Yet once we had settled down in our watering place, and indeed the the war itself had begun to settle down as a fixture, for even destruction may become a habit just like hoarding, the strain of habitual strain passed, as it does, from elation to edginess. I know in me it showed in an increasing dislike of slogans. Naturally, they are necessary, but why must men take them as true? And then again, why can't men stand truth? Hadn't we a good enough case without making it out to be simpler than it was? Of course, this is the common reaction of lonely men when the when the first novelty of new friendship wears off. Add to that, I was now sufficiently high up to know the daily widening difference between propaganda statements and actual commitments. Of course, most civil servants are prouder than they know of their secret power to debunk the headlines. Anyhow, I began to find that I needed some solitude. I would do my long days and bit of the night's walk gladly, if grimly, but I could not keep up the clubboy spirit for the whole 24 hours. I was sufficiently high up to have a bedroom for myself, but like as not, as soon as one was up from supper, someone would knock and ask one to take part in a sing-song for convalescent troops or a very well or really very unreal discussion of union tomorrow. I found myself longing for the dark that used to lie between my out-of-the-way empire office and my bungalow. It was when I found that my one chance of self-company was in taking new ways home from the crowded buildings in which we worked to our equally crowded lodging house at the other end of the town that I made my find. It was about my third trip in attempting circumnavigations. If you went at all directly, you were accompanied. The farther between the two doors of the office and the lodging, the better. I had found that I could strike up from the further end of the seafront on which our hotel, as it used to be stood, then going straight inland and following a small road up to Cone. One could reach the head of it crossed a little pass on the low coastal range and dropped down the next cove. And so, cove is spelled C-O-M-B-E, by the way. And so, with a fine stretch of some four miles, get home when, thank heaven, most people had already finished their supper. I had struck off the lane that led up the floor of the cove and taken an even smaller path, hardly more than a bridle track that led up onto the shoulder of the down. I was in fact just breasting the slope and had found that there was another bridle path following the ridge of the down coming up from the sea, when I saw at the junction of these two paths a low building. The country was quite lonely up there. Everyone who came evidently wanted the sea, not the countryside. The last light was in the sky, for it was summer. The building first roused my curiosity mildly, for I wondered who could have placed it there. A glance showed there was neither a residence nor a barn. A second showed an eye even as amateurishly archaeological. As mine, that it was a small church. But though it might be called a chapel, it certainly was not, as we say, nonconformist. Indeed, it was a genuine piece of the workmanship of what, what of what was once called the old religion. I stopped and looked at it. Now that I had come sufficiently close. Yes it was undoubtedly a fine piece of small Norman work, obviously it must have been restored but the work had been sufficiently well done that I could not in that light certainly tell how much new work had been added to put it into the complete shape which it now held. It stood on the brow of the ridge where the two tracks crossed, one coming up the spine of the down from the sea and the other which I was following and which saddled over the back of the town and would lead me into the next cove. It must have been built when these two routes were in use. The pull up the side of the hill had been steep. The air was mild and pleasant. I was a bit out of breath and glad to stand a moment. And use the moment to look at this rather unexpected piece of antiquity. Not since I was at college had I given any thought to ancient ecclesiastical architecture. It brought back those days rather pleasantly to be scanning weather-eaten moldings, rough chevron axe work, cushion-headed capitals, and those small. Big beat corbel heads, that's C O R B E L, which are the more vigorous and more military forms out of which the later sophisticated gargoyle was to grow. Yes, the gargoyle tried to be horrible. The Romanesque corbel head often achieved, achieved suddenly a certain terror. It was, that I was. Inventuring, inventuring, like inventory, inventorying, as I was inventuring the little piece, the kind of little shrine a rich American might buy and put in his Hudson Side Park, that I noticed a feature which might deserve the collector's term quaint. There was no west door, well, quite likely, but neither was there a south one. Yes, there was a door, but it was set. Uniquely, to my rather out-of-date and never deep knowledge, in the south-west core, coma, 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 c-o-m-e-r. A kind of bell coat rose, that's c-o-t-e. And in the shaft of this, which made a species of big chamfer, that's c-h-a-m-f-e-r, species of big chamfer, or what would otherwise have been the South West Queen's Q-U-O-I-N-S was a small door. I went up to see whether this was not an addition and no part of the original building. But no, I could be certain of that. The small barrel arch with its simple but effective billet mouldings was undoubtedly old stone and old work. It was when I was examining To assure myself on this point, that I found that the small door itself, of very weathered wood, weathered till its grey grain stood out like the veins and sinews and wrinkles of a non-Atajarian's hand, non hand, was unhasped, unhasped, U-N-H-A-S-P-E-D. It stood ajar. I did not stop to ask how or why a small Norman chapel on a lane near the town would be left open at this hour, but pushed it open and slipped in, just to see whether there would be enough light to tell me a little more about the building. There wasn't. The entrance arch was thick, almost a small tunnel or section of a barrel vault. And once inside, I had really almost to grope. I knew though, when I emerged into the church proper, because there was a faint dusk coming down. I judged from the small from the kind of small, high-set, deep-splayed windows which are all such buildings have. I felt my way, and a bench end met my hand. I let myself down into what by the touch I knew for one of those massive medieval pews made of a four-inch slab of oak and as lasting almost as masonry. I settled into its firm but capacious hold. Those old carpenters didn't think much of comfort. Nevertheless, they knew whereof we are made. and. The angle of the seat raked back, and the back also sloped, so putting the body, without any cosseting of cushions, into an attitude that could be kept for long without fidgeting. One was crouched up much in the attitude of worship in which you'll see the faithful, from emperors to shepherds, crouched in any early carving or Byzantine mosaic. There must be something in the theory that if you take a position it will gradually shape your mood. I know I found this dark seat into which I had dropped curiously compellingly attentive. I don't think I thought anything. I was just content to sit curled up and again I think this must be generally true for most of us know that it occurs dozing in bed because I was physically curled up. I was able to let All the psychical knots and tangles of the day uncurl. I felt the steady cool relief and the most refreshing indifference coming over me. I didn't think of getting on. All I did resolve was not to disturb such a state for a while yet. And I did recognise that this was the kind of cooling off and uncurling of which I had been standing in such keen need. My outward attention Two. when it did awake awoke as it does after sleep the first thing that struck it was a tiny piece of casual curiosity I thought I could hear a sound I wasn't anxious to make out what it could be only quite idly to judge if I could where it might be the evening outside I remembered had been dead still as the last green light spread calmly over the sunken sun toward the north. And inside here, the stillness was increased, if anything. And yet there was a sub-sound. Yes, that was it. Not a sounding in the place, but a sub-sound. Something more like a feeling than a matter of hearing. Some deep down and very faint vibration. Deep-down deep under. It was soothing in itself and the question of its exact locality kept my curiosity from becoming restless and visual and stirring me up either to see if the place couldn't be seen. Now that my eyes were more used to the gloom or, if not, whether I couldn't decide I must come some other time and now had better get home. My attention was rewarded at least to my own <clears throat> drowsy satisfaction, for I came quite clearly to the conclusion: don't, don't ask me to tell you clearly my reasons that the sound came as it were, in a line that it was a kind of flow that ran. If ran is not too swift a word, just in front of me. I was on some kind of margin, I at my end of the seat and the bell coat entrance, and the other side was the rest of the the chapel. And just as I had settled that and one side of my mind, like a restless child with an elder person, wanted to hurry me on, I was able to delay again, for now that I had made out the whereabouts of this, the first faint sub-murmur. I heard something else, and again there was the same kind of pleasant, pointless mystery about it. Whence was it coming? Well, I went through the same process. I decided to place it before trying to think what it could be. After a few moments of waiting and attention, I felt pretty clear on that point. It came from the other side of my first sound. It rose from the other side of the margin of subsound on which I sat. I could tell it, distinguish it, because it was, though if anything even more faint, but quite a different quality. The first sound was, how shall I put it, steady. No, that's not quite the sense I want to convey. The only word I can find is different but I know that's clumsy. Perhaps I'd better say the first. The nearer sound was going its own way. It was not paying attention. It was restful because it had about its flow something immemorial. Something that followed its course regardless of all ordinary life. It wasn't struggling with anything. Its force was inevitable. I say all this mainly to make clear the impression made by the other subsound, for it was absolutely the reverse, it was at the very limit of one's sensing, but one felt that if one were close up to it, it would be much stronger, yes, and much more urgent. Yes, I think even then I would have gone as far as that, that it was much more charged, much more locked, packed, set and condensed. I don't want to make out that at this time I thought more of it, or guessed more of it, than I did. Had I, it's pretty clear, I wouldn't have gone there again. But I did get a sense that though it was at a great distance, at least as far as limits of apprehension went, it was very tense, or perhaps, I should say, of very high tension. The sound at my feet was of high amperage. The one, the other side of that of very high voltage. I know I amused myself playing with such analogies until I woke up to the fact that I'd better be getting home to supper and bed. I felt my way back along through the narrow postern, As I pulled the door after me, it made a long low squeak And at that moment, you know how that often happens, I thought that this quite understandable sound had overscored one much more interesting, odd. It was merely an impression, just enough to make me stand still when I got outside, listening. But now I was quite certain of the profound stillness and emptiness of the summer night. Far away down the cove I heard the small whoop of an owl, and still farther away on that smoothness of silence was etched the small murmur of the town. It was so calm a night, I recall, that the sea couldn't be heard at all. I strode along, I strode along, much refreshed by my curl-up and much pleased with my find. The more I thought of it, the more I felt this was quite providential. The wall in itself was lovely, and every day, even when it was raining, I could sit in it in, in that quite delightfully alien place to let the spring of my mind get back its temper. You see, it was just because the place was such a complete contrast that I delighted in it. Delighted in it, Sosa. Not merely a contrast to my colleagues and our common concern, but to the part I was honestly, if with increasing effort, playing. The world was full then of the word escapism. Well, this was my escape. And like a wise child, I was going to hide my cubbyhole from everyone else. I smiled to myself as I fought. Here is my daydream fairy tale. Here is the place where the hard headed civil servant, the man who accepts the current slogans and is a hundred percent in the going concern and up against the grim facts of life and all that, concedes for the necessary time to be all that. This was better than sleep. Far better than any type of sleep that could be given or gotten in a wartime lodging house full of all sorts, combined only by the tension of a common war concern. I swung down the other side of the hill and saw as I looked back that my city of refuge had already sunk out of sight. Against the darkling sky rose only the shoulder of the down. And I very soon reached my home end of the straggling town. I hadn't realised that it sent out a sort of rootlet of houses so far up this cone. A couple of rather grim reminders of what the 19th century thought home to be met, me, before I had had gone more than half a mile. quite live in the
1: sound isn't it I have to put the sound a bit down
0: the next day while at work I noticed time and again that the place floated into the background on my mind and actually when at lunch one of the men began to talk about the countryside. I was tempted to ask, did they know anything about old churches, possibly nearby? I suppressed the wish, remembering my promise to myself not to let a hint slip, and that naturally kept the spot in my mind most of the rest of the day. I managed to stay on a bit later than those in my room, then slipped out and got safely off in the direction of my track. Now there was only one misgiving in my mind. What if the place should be locked? I strode along and was able to gorge my queer interest in my find in the fear I had that that it might no longer prove open. Then I mended my pace when I set myself to the hill and saw my city of refuge loom above it. I was a bit out of breath when I came up to it. But I think I drew my breath all the quicker when I saw the hasp was loose, as before. I was free to enter. I paused the moment and then slipped in. Found my seat, of course. I couldn't miss it and curled up. I've said I was a bit out of breath, for so I, I hadn't paused long enough to get back an even flow. So that may have been the reason for my impression, but I know I thought that just as I entered my breathing echoed in a way I did not think I could be making sufficient noise to cause. As soon as I could, I softened my breaths and listened. No, there was nothing. I was alone in the place. I settled myself away from the tension of attention. Then, once again, as I centred down, as I believe Quakers say of the state they sometimes attain in their silent meetings, I became aware of the two subsounds, or vibrations, I had noticed yesterday. But my attention was, as then, quite without tenseness. I was just detachedly interested, or rather, I was content to send the restless side of my mind off, as someone who wants to lie on a hillside in the sun is glad to get his dog to investigate a series of rabbit holes. Perhaps I've said enough to show why that became my routine for a number of days. Wet or fine, I used to make my route. I excused myself to my colleagues, so that I found my health was needing this exercise. They were good fellows and quite agreeable that no one should wait supper for me. Yes, at that stage I felt quite clear that I had one of a peeve on my nerves, a new blessed way of blunting down one's edginess, and I think they were all the more willing to let me have my way and my spell of lonely exercise as they saw how, when we did meet, the old cordiality with which we had started had largely been restored. But even the best of habits have to grow, I suppose. At least, if you are taking a dose of the best sedative, if your strain is growing, so must your dose. And our strain was growing. The enemy, we felt, perhaps, that's only the self-centeredness everyone has must have found out the importance of our little setup. Again, there's little doubt we were more important than a hundred other of those sub-ganglia of the distributed administrative brain of Britain. But few officers can allow they are not key posts. Certainly we got our share of attention and certainly we found it tiring. It was, sorry, it is a nuisance to have your card indexes made into a sea and land paper chase. Sometimes in the first irritation, one would rather have had one's secretary similarly distributed. We had a good doctor to look after. A man who believed in prevention being better than cure. When the night sky visits became more or less something that had to be expected, he set up a regime for us. He had interviews with each of us. He took me one of the first, he took me one of the first. I was interested to see how thoroughly he had surveyed the sheep of his pasture. He knew quite a lot about me, though I think I'd paid him only one visit for a slight attack of indigestion, and his advice to me this time was the development of what he had given before. His main rule, for he said he was going to insist on it, was that I must take Sunday afternoon off. The greater the strain, the shorter the shifts was his formula, and he certainly had made a fine study of fatigue and exhaustion rates. So. <clears throat> Though honestly, very unwittingly, I said I will keep the rule, for he said if I didn't, the juniors wouldn't, and would always take off my Sunday p.m. But when it came to acting up to my promise, I expect you realise I didn't find it easy. A whole afternoon to amuse oneself. That was exclamation mark. And by now, the weather was more fickle and the afternoons shorter, of course. Why didn't I spend the time in the sanctuary I had found? Well because my free day was Sunday, don't you see? The place was an escape, a reaction spot for me. I wanted it not for itself but as a contrast. Not for anything it might be or have been in its own right, but just because it wasn't office, war, comradeship. Just as when we've been working under too hard a light, and we shut our eyes or go out and stand in the dark, that doesn't mean we want to be blind, and mind you, blind is what I assume all that the chapel stood for, had been and must be. It was a blind turning. Away into fantasy, from fact, from order to wandering, from reason to romance. I had had a good training in economics, and my job had kept my knowledge wetted. I knew the economic confusion of the Middle Ages and felt sure that, in spite of little setbacks such as the two world wars, we were going to put man's economy in order. Of course, then he wouldn't be right. Do you know, it had never occurred to me that if you could tidy up the outer world, if you were efficient economically, you wouldn't be as advanced psychologically. Yes, had gone on to the further fatuous assumption that anyone who was economically advanced must be psychologically progressive, and that anyone who was economically backward must be psychologically ignorant. Could provincial conceit go further? But certainly such was mine. It was no more and no less than that of the entire species of civil servant I represented. So, I wouldn't go to my cubby hole on Sundays because on Sundays, I was sure it wouldn't be my hole, but someone else's nest. I was like that small owl, which, needing a hideout during the day, takes to a rabbit hole, as the rabbit is out most of the day and only wants the burrow only at night when the owl is out on business. But one day, as autumn had fully come, I was driven a step further. I'd taken a fine walk. And the weather had been perfect. I had struck inland and followed the rising country through high pasture and gorse common. When I'd gone so far that, if I were to get back in time for even a late dinner, I knew I must not go further, farther. Sorry. I found a perfect spot. It faced south. The soil was sandy, warm and dry. A real zariba, zar, 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 zariba? of gorse. That's Z A R E B A R. need to work, find out what that means. Zariba. A real zariba of gorse. Thick and high. Swept round in a half circle that screened the small bay of earth from any draft. The gorse still had on it quite a deal of its yellow blossom. Vivid against the sky and its fragrance drawn out by the sun. I threw myself on the earth, and it was springy and warm as a sofa. I let all the tense air I held rise out of me in a huge sigh of content. Do you know that queer little exercise, if it can be called by that rather over-earnest word? Well, I don't think I ought to call it an exercise, anyhow, for I fell into it. But after I learned that some people do it deliberately and say it is of benefit, you lie on your back in a completely lonely place, right straight down on the earth, full length on your back. You look straight up at the sky, right into the vacant blue, and you stretch out your arms full either side. After a while, I noticed and I'm told this is what usually happens. I had a curious sense of the earth behind and beneath me bearing me up as though it rose gently like a vast billow on the smooth unbreaking crest of which I rode and was being carried up and up while the vast curve of the sky, corresponding with the vast sweep of the earth below me, drew earth and me toward it. There was nothing but this great beast bearing me up and this vast span bending over me. It was tremendously restful and refreshing, and when you scramble yourself together, how odd you feel, how scrappy, giddy you, when an odd little fragment, what a tattered and displaced and creased and crumpled piece of leaf, withered leaf, which before was firmly on the vast tree of life and spread by it in the sun. Yes, the sun was quite low, its heat even more diminished, and I looked at my watch, it would need some hurry to get back. I passed into a mood of contrasting vexation, which the fading memory of the queer hypnotic calm as it cleared away only made worse. I hurried along, yes, stumbled along, and the varied going which on my way out had seen such a pleasant change from streets now only added to my sense of frustration. In consequence, by the time I reached the cove next to the one in which lay our lodging house, I realised I was in no mood to meet colleagues. I don't think I am a pleasant character, but growing old does make one wiser. And I have learned to avoid people when one is not certain if one can stand their company. I suppose that might be taken as an example of Mandeville's famous or infamous paradox. Private vices are public benefits. But what should I do? I was quite tired. The evening was quite cool now. Of course, I was being driven a step further into the hole which I had used for my private comfort, but which I knew quite probably its own and indeed public purposes. Well, I must risk it. If I went in and found five desolate landladies, their scrannel voices woven on the worsted threads of a wheezy harmonium, their cantor, or a nasal-voiced curate chanting, talus, canon in unison, or wailing abide with me, I could flee that the place would echo for weeks with that worse than witches sabbath. As I approached the final pull, up the downside and came in sight of the small building, I glanced at my watch. Alas, I was right on time, that right rather pathetically called by Anglicanism Anglicanism. I was brought up in a vicarage. Even song uh, would be due to occur, but another glance at the sanctuary gave me a faint hope there was no sign of anyone approaching. After all, why should they? The town was amply supplied, I knew, with what are frankly, but to me, how forbiddingly, called bright churches with bright services. No one could fancy that this Norman oratory, dark, crabbed, dank, could be a place of attractive worship. I had become used to finding the door unhasked. But that need not me, at least I had considerable weekday evidence, I should find company had gone in before me, or would follow, that the bell coat, C-O-T-E, was silent, told nothing. After dusk, the jangling of bells was discouraged by air precautions. I hesitated, looked again at my watch. It was past that six six thirty, which is the deadline for the outbreak of most Anglican even songs. I listened; no, not a hint of either nasal intonation or drawling response came to me, and the air was as quiet as my first visit. I moved the door, which was only ajar, not set with any evident welcome. I moved it so slowly and gently that even its rusty temper didn't protest. I was able to e- I was able even to draw it to behind me and still there was no arithmetic, arthritic complaint from its hinges. That queer familiar smell of old undisturbed churches met me with a kind of welcome that best welcomes to the shy the assurance that you will be disregarded. With gentle contact, my hand and chin simultaneously made their findings of the pew, and I think I slid into it and curled up without a sound. That kind of timber had given up creaking and such sappy tricks four centuries ago. I felt a great and growing relief, almost most irrational in its depth and force. I felt I was back home and had found home undisturbed. I felt free of this queer little kingdom, perhaps after all, by some strange freak of what is, what is really one of the strangest of all religious bodies. The church, the church was on its own and had no parochial or any other duties, perhaps it was just a museum piece at large. Such a thing wouldn't be too improbable in a church so full of exceptions that you can hardly ever find the rules. I smiled in the dark to myself as I recalled that there were actually places and offices in this church of England which were called peculiars. Well, perhaps this was a peculiar, a particular peculiar all for me. And then in a moment that little play of fancy for which I was hugging myself Took on what perhaps you might call a minor key. You know, when you are playing with words, they turn into what psychologists call word association tests and will suddenly fish up from the depth of your mind associations you didn't suspect, yes, and didn't want. That's with an exclamation mark. That word peculiar began to change key and, from being an archaeological amusement, began to take on just a hint of the other senses it may have. For example, the uncanny. I was now quite certain I had escaped even somewhere. The dreadful banality of a dreary, modernised rite was not to spoil my retreat for me. No, I realised this place was abandoned. Why? I didn't ask for the moment. But then the question did form itself, why? And then another question followed. Abandoned to what? Those questions, those inquiries were quite as irrational, quite as independent of me as were those first investigations which I had let the child or dog side of my mind make when I first had found the place and killed up in it. But this time there was a change. They both had this in common, that I was not controlling them. But otherwise, they were utterly different. The first inquiries had been pleasantly detached, the idlest and easiest of curiosities. These new questions were completely the reverse. They had about them an irrational concern, an urgency. For one moment, and I think this gives some gorge to their force, I felt a sudden pang of regret that I had not found landladies, curate, Harmonian and all set at full outer key blast at evening song. Then that thought was swept away by the immediate concern. Again, my discovery, if it was one, was certainly not enough to account for my swift sweep of mood. I was certain of only one thing, and I couldn't give proof of it, that I was not alone someone was in the place. Well, why shouldn't this be? Was I the only person who might like to sit at dusk in an old church? Yes, but I was certain of more than that. Like a seeping tide that was cutting me off, these certainties grew quietly, vaguely, and uncertainly. There was someone here, and it was not Most emphatically, it was not any more than this was a bevy of conventional landladies about to sing Abide With Me, someone like myself, just resting and relaxing. No, whoever was here was here with a business, with a process in hand. And with that word business, there ran into my mind that strangely unpleasant line from the Vulgate version of the Psalms. The line about the unknown terrors of the dark. The Goshom in notte. Notte, N-O-C-T. The peculiar concern that goes about its business in the dark. Yes, I felt a shudder as those words repeated themselves in my mind, but they seemed like a caption written beside an otherwise enigmatic and sinister picture. Of course, I could see nothing, nor could I hear anything either. I tried to sense that current I had diagnosed as thrown past where I sat, yes, but I could just be aware of that. Next, to to myself, I tried to see if I could stand out for that other current, the other side of the margin on which I sat. But that only added to my disquiet. It was quite clear that it was out there that the trouble lay. Then, in a moment, I came to a conclusion. The far-away force, the force I described after my first visits as having a tension about it, a high voltage, it was that which was now disturbing me. Before. You remember, it was at the very limit of my apprehension. Well, now it had come much nearer. It was not only right up against the other side of the margin on which I sat, cresting against it, but somehow I was much more in key with it. I could get much nearer to me through my natural human insulation. I was much more exposed. I drew myself back. My curl-up became a true crouch. I was gathered with knees, arms, shoulders, hands and head in a bundle so that I must have been little above the book rest of the pew. I don't think I wished I hadn't come. Now, I was somehow fixed in the moment and my attention, willy-nilly, was with what was ahead of me both in space and time. I peered just over the book and tried to pierce the darkness. Do you know it was quite a relief when at last I was quite certain that someone had moved. Yes, there was someone there and this I knew that quite as clearly was the cause of the atmosphere, of the tenseness, of the uncanny business that was going forward. So it was a relief to know that a presence was actually physically there. When you, have, when you have a force placed, to some extent you have it defined. When you have decided it as at least largely physical, you can begin to think about it rationally. My sense of sound also stood me in good stead. I could place my, what shall I call it, my protagonist I knew where it must lie. It was, and I felt the relief such a discovery gave, as far away from me as it could be in that place, it was right up at the other end of this little cove. That, of course, wasn't much, but it was something, and it was immensely reinforced by another discovery, another kind of sounding. Something that, though it sounds irrational, was certainly as clearly apprehended as the bearings of this strange, powerful, uncanny object. And that was that its force, what it was sending out with such really awful stress, was not only not aimed at me, but, how shall I put it, not in my direction. Just to know that was such a relief that it permitted my interest, which had frozen as a hair freezes when the hound is right on it, to stir a little. What could be going on? I could be sure of one thing only, that a drive of force was being sent out with a dreadful vigour, with agonising effort against some frightful opposition. Then, when I began to feel that something must burst if the silent tension were sustained a moment longer, it stopped. But the cessation, cessation, cessation—you cessation, know, uh, like stopping smoking in it. C E cessation. But the cessation of that drive only twitched my dismay onto another circuit. True, the pressure had been cut off, but the stoppage was caused by a physical break—a new kind of shock. Of surprise hit me. For what broke the subcharged silence. Though not loud. Was all the more alarming. It was a groan of such agony. That I hope I wouldn't hear it again. At least till I can stand it. Oh yes. I've heard and watch a good many people in extremis. And one thing I'm certain of. This was an agony deeper than that. Which can be wrung from the spirit of man, by any physical distress. It was all the more ghastly then, when, after that groan, in which the very oak of the bench I sat on seemed to join, as though anything which had ever had life had to respond to such intense capacity to feel. After a short silence, there came a sob. Again, there was nothing of relief in that very human sound, indeed I might say there was nothing that was human. No more than that groan was it the reaction of a creature expressing the early loss of self-control, its self-pity and protest at its pain. It showed the sorrow so deep as the groan expressed the pain so piercing that one's own feeble reaction Could only be a wave of the most horrible despair. If in the world or anywhere there were pain and sorrow of this quality, what was the use of life? To what end courage and love and sacrifice? For they were simply so many drops of warm water falling into the sub-zero void. Onto that awful core of ice which Dante believed he saw looking Sorry, saw locking the central depth of hell. It was the sense of that despair that filled me with a new kind of panic. I don't know how long I sat. Breath and heartbeat seemed shrinking under that weight. I can't say then whether it was relief or only another kind of fear shot across the desolation which was sucking me down when I heard quite clearly again with my physical ears as clearly as the groan and the sob, an ordinary movement. I call it ordinary because there was no furtiveness about it. No hint that whoever made it was wishing to conceal the fact or indeed was aware of anyone being near. Got Quite strong the sounds then, didn't it? But it was not ordinary in another way. In out-of-the-way parts of the world, where street lighting is uncommon and bad accidents not so, you can often be called on for quite advanced first aid in the middle of the night. You spontaneously get to make your first diagnosis by sound, by the way the man who is coming to you for help is moving. That's a pretty bad smash, you guess, straight away. a kind of fumbling walk that runs near the end of his tether he's been trying to get back from where he was hit and will hardly make the this porch and so on well the same guessing quickly quick sorry well the same guessing quick and sure as a shot went off my mind heavens I thought whoever moves like that what exhaustion And then only a will of iron could move a body that drags like that. The drawing, dragging sound, began also to awake another distress in my mind. There could be no doubt of it. It was coming toward me. True, the current of force, which I so much dreaded, might strike in my direction. That was temporarily cut off. But now I was to face another ordeal. I was to be brought up against whatever it was that could send out such a piercing thrust. Yes, and in that effort experienced such an anguish and such almost overwhelming opposition. Well, I couldn't get away. I felt I mustn't betray that I was here and there was a cowering little reassurance in the thought that the creature of such force and such labour pain was totally unaware of me and just as I'd concluded there was nothing for it but to wait the oncomer paused too indeed the sound of movement had not approached very near to me or rather because the place was so small I suppose I ought to say it hadn't moved very far from the spot the extreme other end of the little nave where I had first sensed it. I was hunched and gaping with my effort to hear. At last I was quite sure I had come to pause. I dare not say to rest about halfway down the nave. I could make sure of something further. It was now situated somewhere at the base of the north wall. And so in a kind of diagonal from my corner position on the southwest angle, Nothing happened for a little time, and if not reassurance, at least a kind of mood akin to resignation began to seep into my mind. I felt I could at least stick it out. The next change was as gradual as the change of lighting which takes place at the very beginning of an eclipse. That queer hint of lividness which comes into the strong brightness of the sun and seems to come not so much. From the sun's losing light and from the world's seeming to be able to soak up and exhaust the light that's falling on it. Some activity, alien, utterly uncanny, was starting up again. I don't know how I knew the next thing, but almost at the same time I couldn't distinguish that this new thing was in some way different from the last storm I had felt rushing ahead of me. Again, I can only say it was nearer to my level and this awoke a personal fear once more. The utter distress I had felt at those first sounds and the torment that, that gave them rise was, I suppose, somehow selfless or at least collective. I was being put into circuit with and being in danger of being overwhelmed by the sheer misery of existence the Welshmerz 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 Welsh W-E-L-T-S-C-H-M-E-R-Z as that tragic people the Germans call it but now I have the humiliating and mean sense of personal fear fright for myself for as I've said when that drive first caught my attention I had, had a kind of relief that it wasn't hitting at me was disregarding me, yes, was even unaware of me and all my source and kind. But now the direction and the aim and the kind of force being used, all these had changed and they had all changed for the worse, as far as I personally was concerned. What I mean, for I know how difficult it is to give you any real sense of it, is that the presence was now pointing in my direction. Further, it was deliberately aiming its attention in my quarter. And, finally, it was using, or about to use, a medium which might permit it to strike directly at me. I had clear proof of all these suspicions in a few minutes. Naturally, I kept my eyes on the spot where the noise had come to rest and silence. At first I could see nothing, and then something did appear. Knowing that if you are to see with night sight, you mustn't glare at the spot you wish to sense. That too you learn in the unlit places of the world. I shrug my eyes to and fro and then up and down to straddle the spot as it were. And... Try if any kind of <coughs>
1: impression...
0: You knew that's going to happen. try if any kind of impression of shape would be yielded to me and as I raised my eyes I did get a piece of information which though it gave me no news of my actual situation promised I might later know more I ought to have remembered there was a moon that night and its light was beginning very faintly to percolate indirectly it would I judged have some of its rays cast on the deep splays of the high, small windows. And so, into this gloom below, a kind of tertiary twilight would distill. Certainly, the light, if light it could be called, a not diluted gloom increased. And finally, I had no doubt, against the north wall, about one third of the way down, a figure was standing. Further, that figure was facing toward me. I don't know how long we stayed like that. It was, I suppose, after the few moments in which one has the kind of relief that comes from knowing a little where you are and what you are up against, that I felt again the oncoming tide of distress. Some powerful current was being generated, and and as as it stepped up I felt the growing torsion of its whirlpool rotation. What was it? And even more, what was that other force against which it it pulled so desperately? I was in it, but not, thank heaven, quite of it. I was in the mill race of those cross tides, but somehow how in heaven's name can I put it? Somehow like a swimmer in the lee of a small rock or sandbank. Around that shelter, the swirl and race of those awful tides swept and rushed and kept almost snatching me out and away from my cover. But something kept me from being torn away and swept into the deep. I know that by then I was physically clinging to the front of the pew with a grip that could have raised my whole body. And I was also peering as anxiously as the lookout man, in a typhoon, to see if by any chance the storm would check and lull. So it was that I noticed one more thing. This was a physical thing, I'm sure, and just because it was physical, though heavens knows it was uncanny enough, it actually distracted me from my basic panic. That I think helped to show how much more terrible was the atmosphere of that place that any material happening could be. I could now see the size of the figure, it looked like that of a fairly tall and very thin man, and was also pretty sure now that the arms were stretched out towards where I crouched. The first sign that anything of a phenomenal nature was about to take place was indeed about those arms, for I began to notice that I could see the hands with increasing clearness What had been simply the suggestion of an extension, now, I could see quite clearly were hands, for they were lit more clearly for the moment than any other part of the shadowy person. The trebly diluted moonlight could not account for that. There could be no doubt they were shimmering with a light that came from them. I said, though, that they were lit for the moment more clearly than any other part of the dim figure, for it was only for the moment, just like a very faint moon rise, I began to notice another light, or another area suffused by this weird glow. Where I judged the head to be, my judgment received a painful confirmation. For two ember spots of light began to glower. Again my experience in the wilds gave me the answer. There could be no doubt for anyone who had ever been in the night jungle, that what I was seeing is what naturalists call the tapetum. T-A-P-E, tape, T-U-M-U, T-U, sorry. tape, and then T-U-M, tapetum. That frightening phosphorant, phosphorant glow given off in the dusk by a wild animal's eyes, when suddenly he, he turns them on you. It can also be given off by human eyes if they were, had, have been out in the nocturnal world and shunning for long the day. I remember a witch doctor I once passed in the dusk gave me a shock in that way. I often wonder how long we remained confronted that. Like. Had no more power to move than a bird has when a snake has its well under its glare. Besides, there was another thing that I must try to make clear. i said that this force, though very near the pressure which would penetrate right into me, forgive such terms, they really do describe something, that's in brackets by it, was not quite of that quality. I could feel it beating against some very thin partition, which still, thank heaven, separated me from it. And also, I would like you to recall, it was not actually aimed at me. At whom, then, was it aimed? Well, that was why I couldn't get out. Do you see? I was wedged in, caught, trapped by some pressure, some dreadful pack that was somehow gathered by the force ahead of me and was being held by that force. I was, in fact, in between a nightmare tug-of-war and had the feeling that If I were broke, I would be torn from my mooring in space and time, and dragged helplessly. And here is the center of my problem, either into utter horror, an utter horror that somehow had risen and flooded up around me, or into an utter terror that lay ahead of me, that poured out from that figure that stood over against me. That figure, I now knew, stood for two things. In the first place, It was the event through which drove this terrible, utterly inhuman force. And in the second, it had roused this other force, this force of horror, this flood in which I was involved, but not yet quite swept away or liquidated. It was then that I realized with a kind of self-contempt that ghastly as the horror was, somehow it was nearer me, more kin. I have to confess that if I had to choose one or the other, mad and base as it would be, would be of me, nevertheless, I would be forced by my physicalness, my animality, to choose the horror, not the terror. I don't know whether that decision really decided anything. I hope and trust now that it didn't. But I know that not long after I had recognised this dreadful fact about my own nature. The atmosphere began to be less of a torture. The pressure was being remitted. It ebbed, and I was able to notice that the baleful light on the hands and in the eyes died, or I no longer could catch them. The moon, too, was evidently moving, so that the faint light on the deep window splays above was no longer present and the place grew darker once more. In the deepening gloom I finally lost sight of the figure altogether. It was then I heard movement again. It too was a movement of ebb. The sound was once more of something moving with unutterable fatigue on the very verge of final exhaustion. I know it stirred the first non-selfish emotion in me. I felt I ought to go and offer some assistance to one so spent, so wounded. But on the life of me, I could not. Granted, there was a creature. I could not say a fellow creature in this terrible place. Granted, he or it was in ultimate distress. Yet I could not bring myself to go towards it and offer any aid. I had no strength in me, anyhow. And the thought of coming nearer to that struggle roused my panic again. uh, Yeah, roused my panic again to full pitch. I cowered back further at the very thought. And then I became aware of something I'd forgotten all this while the other force that ran just in front of me, that had been there, I now realised, all the while and over those whose margin and bed I had been looking at this awful, and still to me, utterly incomprehensible drama. No, I said to myself, of course, I couldn't go, even if I wished. There's that frontier, and with that thought, or as I believe, discovery, a kind of relief I knew I was free. I waited till that unutterably sad trailing, dragging sound died away, ending with a click. Then after a few moments, when no more sound came, I rose slowly and silently as one moves in a dangerous place and stole out. When I was under the faint stars, I looked at my watch. It was past midnight. I was home in some 20 minutes. It was all downhill and you may be sure I didn't loiter. They had left some warm drink for me in a thermos and a little food. I drank but ate nothing. When in bed, I lay with sudden attacks of rigor shaking me like a fever. But after an hour or so, I slept. My sleep was, I think, dreamless, but I woke up knowing I had been through something that had left its mark. Still I was not late for breakfast, and the strain I soon recognised was not in that level of me which would interfere with the office routine. But it was somewhere nonetheless, and it showed its strength in this way, I found that if I tried to drive the thought of the chapel out of my mind, then I became disturbed and distressed. The only way to get on with one's work, and then one could do well enough, was to give it the harborage it demanded. It did not wish, as far as I could judge, to intrude into my day's duties. It, But it demanded that it should be granted the station. It had taken up a kind of sentinel on the path between my office life in the world of the great cause, the war, and mankind's future. And this other world into which I had stepped, just hoping to rest a while from things which were too real, this other world which now, which had now shown me that it had its own forces and struggles of such unsuspected intensity that, besides them, our squabbles might prove to be the shadows. Well, I had no choice. My work, after all, came first. I must do it under those conditions. Which my mind, for I still thought that was the limit of my involvement, chose rationally or irrationally to impose. So one side of my mind didn't think too much about the chapel, but did keep its image hanging there, and the other side, the business side, had to allow that and go on with its work. But As the week wore on, I realised that this was simply an armistice, and a very unstable one. I realised that I would have to meet some kind of decision when the week ended. Indeed, by Thursday, that was so clear that I tried to get out of it by going to the doctor. And, of course, as I ought to have foreseen, he threw me right back into the midstream that was carrying me along into the dark. Or, if that's too dramatic, into the utterly unknown. I told him frankly that I felt the long afternoon on Sunday was too much of a good thing and wouldn't he let me, say, take off an occasional afternoon when I wanted. I even fibbed and said office pressure was greater now. And a little later it would be easier to take off such a long regular spell. He actually laughed at that. Classic excuse mechanism and I expect a lie to boot. Don't bother. Of course, we all lie when our real interests, our subconscious drives are involved. I'll take you on your own ground and, mind you, think nonetheless well of you for it. Granted that you want to get away out of this setup and who doesn't, who's staying at bottom. You can't get away decently or, in fact, actually. I can't let you No one who could, can, unless you can have a nice, neat little nervous breakdown. Well, that looks nice enough, doesn't it? We all know about you. Quite well-known civil servant, was home on sick leave. War comes, joins up, overworks. Of course, says his last remaining aunt, they should never have taken him straight, as you might say, from his sickbed and broken him like that. What fools these men are, and believe me, they are said to have doctors, if I may use such a name, to help him, help them, say, help them. And you'll settle down at Eastbourne with her, and she'll spiderweb you with shawls, and rules, and blankets, and bath chairs, and she'll live to 90 on your ill health, and you'll be dead in half a dozen years. And she'll get all your savings and have, to a permanent grievance against the government. I think this is how far I got and then... <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, let's continue because I can. The only thing that gets me is my neck being so still for so long. Um, but, yeah, I can do this.
1: Ooh, just that
0: a little bit there, just a little bit of movement. Yes, she'll do very well out of it, but I don't see why you should be vampired in that way. And all for your own fault. And I'm not going to let you. Oh, God. And I'm not going to let you. The best, sorry, this beast of a war will spend itself in time. And I'm going to bring as many of my patients through as I can. Believe me, I know something about it. You'll go for your Sunday afternoon trail, whether you like it or not, or I'll somehow get you for insubordination. But if you don't, let me tell you, not only will you get queerer and queerer, but it'll spread. It always does. And now I'll tell you something just to show that though I'm speaking to you like a schoolmaster, though you're older than I, I do want us to be colleagues on this, your health, as on the rest of this lousy job. Do you know that you're feeling that the walk is bad just because it's doing you good and showing how much you need it? When I was doing my psychiatry, we were lectured by a doctor who, in his researches, had looked into the way that various systems found they could stave could stave off nervous strain. One that struck in my mind had to do with those oddest of all odd people. The Carthusian Contemplatives, that's a C-A-R-T-H-U-S-I-A-N. Well, I don't think any sane man outside the church that has to bless them would call them way, would call their way of life normal or fairly safe. But they're no fools, he told us. Do you know that they all have to turn out of their foggy little holes and leave their mumbling offices—I think they call them—once a week. Once a week, mark me, my dear patient, the abbot clears out the whole. Frowsy brood, and they have to air themselves about in the same countryside. Indeed he said one avid remark that had rather excuse them from all sorts of scoring points such as fasts and not having enough sleep, and heaven knows what other record breakings than let them off from their weekly trail. So I'm not going to let you off, not I. And he laughed me out of his office. And in a couple of days, it would be Sunday. Well, there was nothing to do. I just drifted, and in the back of my mind, the chapel loomed clearer and clearer. Of course, all those days, I didn't go to the Cone Walker home. I worked late and actually went back with a colleague the ordinary way through the town. Yes, I think I can say I gave myself every chance. I didn't run on my fate, it ran me down with the ease with which a greyhound runs down a winded hare. Sunday was a f- was fine again. Perfect I'm reading this on Sunday, isn't it? To do that. Sunday was fine again. I went the same walk it was the line of least resistance and certainly neither the doctor nor myself nor anyone else could have questioned the health and value of the first part i found my place amid the gorse again it was even quieter for though the year was a week older the quiet weather had held these gentle remissions that autumn will make to summer recalling the preceding performer for one more bow before putting on its own more rousing act. The whole air was golden, the distance lost in haze, and everywhere in the foreground the grass, weeds and hedges laced and gleaming with the trailing filaments of the gossamer spider. Fine lines of wavering light giving a delicate, gilded beauty to every object. Faint lines of iridescence. Making the harshest outline vague and opulence. Opulence. Opulence? Yeah, opulence. Opalence. Opalence, O P A L. Not opulence, opalence. O P A L E S C E N T. Opalence. I stretched myself again, and though when I was spread on the earth and to the sky, the chapel did not actually leave the frontier of my mind. It did take on some kind of significance. There was mystery there, awful mystery, but somehow it was not mystery about meaning. That mood, not of hope, still less curiosity, but I think I can say of interest, or perhaps I ought to say, if you will excuse the word, of faith, me on the way back. Indeed, I think it was that which made me submit without a struggle to the realisation that I should not be able to pass that small door on my way home. I should go in, come what might th- when I was again within. I was pretty tired when I came abreast of that last rise. I don't think I paused to recover breath even, but just as a blind animal stumbles at the end of the day into its stall. I turned into the narrow duct that led from this world, with what it considered its all-engrossing tragedy and conflict, into that other, that other beside which our outer struggle was a nursery mishap. I placed myself. No, I had no fear, no reassurance that I would find a harmless little even-song twittering away its ineffectual platitudes in this spot. I realized the change in myself when I found passing through my mind a fleeting wish that it might have been some. No, I was here beyond amusement or boredom. Out in another world, a world of desperate business. What I learned after a great expert, Bernard of Clevoy, that Clevoy is that how you pronounce it uh, C L A I R V A U X called the business of businesses, but which was to me then simply the process that was working out itself in the darkness. I settled into what I now felt to be my place. I was even aware of my frontiers, as it were, the margin on which I was drawn up and that other side where that conflict all the more awful became indefinable. Swaged, swayed, swayed, and lunged, and swept in waves right to my feet and against my breastwork. I was all the more surprised then, that on settling down, my breathing being eased, I found not peace, but a kind of vacancy. It was a hush, and then I understood it was a hush of waiting. We were crouched expecting something to arrive, something which maybe was, could be, could it be, late, hindered, postponed from being here at its appointed zero hour? This kind of thought, if it can be called anything so definite, was only forming in my mind. I had, in fact, just turned round in my mind, as you might say, to ask myself what I meant by such a fancy and what, in particular, did I mean by saying we were waiting. Who could be waiting but myself? And then speculation was swept out of my consciousness like a heap of dried leaves by a blast of wind. For the arrival had taken place. The presence was here. The conflict was to be joined at once. I tried to use my surface senses to the best of my powers. I knew that my power was to endure, perhaps like sanity, would depend on keeping up that defence of objectivity, of object and subject, of here and there and now and then. So I looked about me and was able to scrape together a few such supports. I noticed that there was again the faint moonlight and it was not weaker than the last week. I was even able to say to my mind, of course, of course, because after seven days What was only a moon of the first quarter declining is now one getting on to the full ascending. The much greater volume of light was already striking on the deep splays of the windows above and casting down a twilight which allowed objects in their main masses and colour contrast to be made out. I could see that there was some kind of simple altar right at the other end. I thought I could make out that about one third of the way down the north wall was some sort of small pulpit or maybe a reading desk. My mind also was able to move a little. By that I mean I was able to think. Then that must have been the spot and place where I saw the figure at my last visit. It moved from the altar and stood at that lectern. There was something reassuring in making out. That, that, that the being or creature had followed a route which complied with the ordinary lines of a familiar liturgy and rite. But the reassurance of this simple ratiocination was all engulfed a moment after in a horrid immediacy, an instant, instantaneous shock. For as I scanned the spot which lay diagonally to me, I realised that it was filling up I saw with enough clearness so as to leave me without any refuge of doubt under which to hide. Yet what I saw was still hardly more than a penumbra. I knew that the small desk or pulpit had been of a certain mass and height. Well now I knew that had changed. The spot was filled. The pulpit was occupied. A presence was presiding, mounted, and ranged on the all-too-small space between it and me. All I could do was to keep on saying over and over, like a mantra, to myself, what's there to be afraid of? What's there to fear? And each time, because I knew I couldn't say what it was, the fear mounted. Yes, physical fear, it really always focused, channeled, filtered to it. We only get through the body, the little duct of the body to us, to the real person who suffers. That is why we dread madness more than anything else, for then our defences are turned. The pass has been outflanked and we are enveloped. I think my chief terror lay in this, that whereas last time I had heard whatever it was move about and take up its station, now it had. I was sure made no physical move. It had simply materialized at that spot, looming out of me, looming out at me, and it was launching something. Of that, I was left in no doubt. In a very few moments, it was not only gathering force, drawing itself together, mounting, but it was coiling itself to fling out some attack out in the path in which I lay. The light from the moon must have been slowly increasing. I know I could now see, if not in detail, all the main masses and shapes of the place. And I was certain that a figure was standing on that small rail pedestal, perhaps not forty feet from me, and I was equally certain that it was no figure of flesh and blood. Whatever I might have reassured myself with regard to it last week, now I had no doubt, only an utter misgiving of certainty that I was in the presence of some sort of psychic phenomenon, and one of quite unsuspected power. What was the use of asking whether it was friendly or no? I felt as every simple primitive man feels that such distinctions of good and bad belong to morality to the dealings of men with men and such mediated spiritual powers whom they meet with covenant and rites and sacrament. But the real distinction, as they know, is just between force and force, between that puny force we call physical, material, visible, and that awful unlimited force which is none of those easily manageable, endurable things. Yes, I used to smile when I was in my rather out of the way station anthropologists used to drop in. As I was the host and prided myself on being the better educated man, the generally educated man who can always draw out the poor little specialist on his hobby, I would let them talk shop and the younger ones used to entertain me with these new theories. What then seemed to me just a relapse into superstition about mana, M-A-N-A, that word taken from the South Seas, about spirituality being a power, in some ways like an electric charge. If you hadn't the right insulation or couldn't take as high a charge as that which was being shot at you, well, it was just too bad. It shook you to pieces, whether you were good or bad, or it was good or bad. I used to laugh at that point and say with mock modesty that I was glad my insulation was fairly thick. And I used to think it was a good thing that holiness had disappeared and morality taken its place. That we had domesticated this dark deus abscondus, that's D-E-U-S and then A-B-S-C-O-N-D-I-D-U-S and turned him into a good little house watchdog as our social conscience. Oh heavens, is anyone more superstitious, more narrow, more blind, than the man who prides himself that he knows his world, that it is his oyster, and that now he has got rid of inhibitions and childish fears he's going to tidy up the universe in the time it takes for a five-year plan to stall. You remember, the week before, I had been startled by seeing that inner glow emanating from the figure, from what I took to be its eyes and outstretched arm hands. Sorry. Well, this time, strain as I would, I could not make out these points, these bearings. I believe would have been a relief if I could. Yet the sense of pressure of presence was not less, it was greater. The light too was certainly better. I ought to have been able to make out more, though of course, if there were any kind of phosphorus or photism that's P H O T I S T I S M involved photism involved, then perhaps the increased, though still indirect lighting would have made it seem dimmer. I was trying to rouse my mind to hold on to such definable puzzles just to keep it on any sort of rails. So I thought I had better keep my eyes from undue strain by glancing round the building before again trying to sound the object which I felt was the centre of my present chaotic world, the vortex of this psychic whirlwind. I remember experiencing a further puzzlement then. I've said the light was fairly good, quite the best illumination I'd experienced in that strange place. I was still master enough of my sense of time and place to know that it ought to be getting lighter as the moon swung up and round the sky and threw its light more directly into the small row of deep-set windows up aloft. Yet, it was equally clear that the light was not gaining. Of course, the sky might suddenly have become overcast. But, I had to own that the evening out of which I had come into this gloom was as serene as one as I'd ever seen. One that the meteorologist catalogues as set fair. Besides, as I swung my eyes to and fro to get as clear an impression of my situation as night sight would allow, I became aware of a fact that showed it was no outside change that caused this gathering shadow. As I looked up, I could see that the upper part of the building was certainly not darkening. The barrel vaulting in which dust ought to have been able to accumulate was certainly now sufficiently lit so that I could count the simple bow ribs that ran latherly across it. No, the darkness was partial. It was gathering. It was collecting at the ground level. I found that my mind fought against such a conclusion but my eyes would not let me doubt it. I was being immersed in a rising tide of darkness. But there was more to it than just that. Though that filled me with distress as I glanced to and fro in this fog I perceive something which, as I put it, may seem to you in a way reassuring, but I must ask you to believe it was precisely the reverse. The rising shadow was not uniform, by that I mean it clotted. It was dotted about, like columns of heavy black smoke rising from a plane. I don't know why I was so slow in seeing what this really meant, I suppose because I just fought against such a conclusion, however plain. So it came to me like a blow, as though it had suddenly happened instead of slowly, how shall I put it, condensing. You see, I was horrified, sunk to a new level of panic because I found that, quite as mysteriously as that figure had taken up its position in the lectern, a congregation had gathered, had risen out of the ground. That's all I knew of them. I had no idea who they were or what they were. It was a crowd of some sort. It filled the benches, thicker and thicker. Then. right, I'm going to have to uh, pause this. Then I understood one more thing. The figure that stood looking down at us from the lecture was the reason. He was summoning this host. And he was holding them, holding them as an orator holds. In that worn cliché, his origin spellbound. That word was the mock just here and now. Though never a word passed between him and his group. Never a sign of response did they give. But what attention? It was an attention equal to the appalling force he put out to keep them held. They were a dark flopped and fropped muster, I could tell that. And next I could see that they were hooded. Their heads were wrapped round, swat head, so that it was clear how they were all aligned, or focused on the figure ahead. The next thing I knew had nothing to do with sight and deductions from such glimpses as I could get, but it was far clearer. Barely a second,
1: it's
0: far clearer. It's still recording. I thought I might have lost it then, but yeah, the uh, Hans Zimmer new album, June, I've finished. Uh, But I've still got quite a bit to read, so Um, I'm just going to pause, I think, and we will continue. Um... So, yeah, just continuing now uh, after the pause with the new sounds. Um, Okay, let's go, let's continue. I could and had realised that the intensity of their attention by watching them. But now another sense came into play. I could gather their awful anxiety not to be distracted. How did I know that? How do I know all that followed? Well, I can no more tell you that. And at the same time I can no more doubt it, than a man whose senses are coming back to an anaesthetised limb can tell you how it is that it begins to feel or doubt that he is feeling again poignantly. For as I gathered their anxiety was a double one, to hold onto something ahead of them and beat back and away something that was dragging at them. I realised My possible part in it. I realised that in a way they might be. In a way they were aware of me. Aware of me as a possible distractant. And with that knowledge, another chasm of misgiving opened in front of me. I realised that my restless, ignorant, alien presence could, and to some extent did, distract them. That they were increasingly, if dimly, aware of that. And then with a sudden snap of fear That if they were aware that I might distract They would turn around, they would turn on me It was then that I knew more clearly than ever before What horror is Not terror, but horror I thought I had known terror And that it had drained me of all animal reactions Such as disgust, loathing nauseating, flesh-creeping dread. But now it was horror turned to pull me down to a new depth. For I knew, without being able to imagine it, had I been able, then I might have found some purchase for my courage. That if that, that congregation turned around, I should see faces, but faces which, just by the look of them, could leave a mark forever on mine. All I, then, all I then knew was just one thing, they mustn't turn around, they mustn't and by no means must I disturb them, or they might, and my only method of not disturbing them was to attend as they were attending to that which stood ahead of us and was holding them. I drove my attention forward, I laid hold on that centre to prevent my inattention from bringing the awful attention of this group on my But as soon as I was done That I began to know at last At a depth to which I must That I trust I shall never have to go again At least not so unprepared As I was then I began to know that Terror is deeper than horror For now at last And by my own act By my own fright I had forced myself directly And deliberately Into that current which still then Which till then Was my by was till then was bypassing me. I felt the pull. I knew that the figure ahead was dragging me, us for I was one with this dreadful group, dragging us with a pain not only to itself but to us far more intense than the pain caused by dragging a man who, when your only grip on him is by a broken and half severed limb. And you are dragging him by your hand that is hardly burned. We were, we were being racked. And the rack was so terrible because we were not free to be dragged into the place where he would us. We were tied. Not merely tied. We were being dragged backward by a weight. A tide of ebbing loss that swept remorselessly round us and, that, and was sucking us down. The pain of intense agony at being held by a purchase that seemed to tear body from soul was matched by a fear as awful, a fear that the engulfing tide that tore at us would tear us free from the grip and whirl us backward into the abyss. Pain and fear fought dragging at the frail link, neither able to make it wholly his until it seemed that no consciousness could stand the strain, that the soul must snap. Yet at that moment, one realized that, 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 the third choice was debarred. No, the soul could not snap. The final choice was here being wrung out of it, pain or fear, nightmare loss or tormenting struggle. And the figure ahead, at whatever cost to itself, and to us for I was now one with this awful crew, was determined that we should be dragged out of the freezing void of the bottomless pit into that fire which would flay us to the bone. On my knowledge went, dawning over this ghastly field of conflict, without words or definitions I knew that all of those here had somehow made a vast mistake, committed a giant treason. They had forsaken and betrayed what they truly were and had tried to make terms with the pit. They had tried to succeed into the darkness and leave the light because it seared and burned. By now my fear knew no bounds. I felt that I, too, must have become one of them. It was the real world. Outside, yes, the walls. And the cause and the hopes of a planned mankind. All of those things. Oh, I could think of them as a man who is dying of cancer and feels its pangs coming on him. Can remember reading, just before this bout, a fairy story to a child. All about ogres and brave knights and beautiful princesses. I know that is true because I noticed with a kind of casualness that bright flashes of light had been striking on the side of the walls high up for some time, and that about the same time there had been sharp, very sharp sounds, then broader ones and long rhythms of rushing candles. It was long before my mind could even fumble these things together, so numbed was it to that world. Then I knew, in a dull, indifferent way out there up there in the world of physical forces and economic horizons of course quite a big air raid must be going on it made no more difference to me than would boys playing with firecrackers and toy rockets what did defeat and physical pain and bodily death matter beside the second death for that out there i saw and i can still sense it as i recall it now was simply superficial symptomatic while what I was in was the primary thing the ultimate reality I am not a physically brave man and don't enjoy the risk of wound or mutilation but I know that at that time I felt as though liberty yes and safety lay outside down in the attack town in contrast to the abysmal peril which like the psychic maelstrom was spinning round me in this awful rent in the safe net and curtain of the everyday world. I felt this vortex must soon erode away whatever it was that still gave me a frail protection from its awful suction and I should be swept out and down. No word can give me fear of that abyss. I can only repeat That besides its inhumanness, every human activity. I think I'll pause for this. I'm going to change the music. But I know that at that time I felt as though liberty, yes, and safety lay outside, down in the attack town, in the contrast to the abysmal peril which, like a psychic maelstrom, was spinning me round, was spinning me round me in this awful rent in a safe net and curtain of the everyday world. I felt this vortex must soon erode away whatever it was that still gave me a frail protection from its awful suction and I shall be swept out and down. No words can give my fear of that abyss. I can only repeat that besides its inhumanness, every human activity, yes, war and hatred and cruelty seemed childish and familiar as I sank deeper as the frail barrier thinned, I kept on feeling as I supposed a condemned criminal feels. What do the things matter about which men who, who can still go on being men fuss and quarrel? If only I could get back into that silly world, how fully, how sanely, how well would I live? What seeming hardships, what limitations would I endure for that security? For the state I was plumped in was getting worse. I could gorge with that, with that with fair exactness. It was not merely a feeling, or the awful feeling had confirm- confirmatory symptoms to show me that the external risk was increasing. I could see that the place was getting fuller. The moon must now have been high, and the flashes of lights of all sorts lit up the place at times quite brightly. Some houses must have begun to burn in the town. But though the upper level of the building was now quite clear to the sight, the floor level was darker than ever. It was crowded with darkness. The congregation of dark shapes was flocking, packing. To my terrified mind, they seemed intent on one thing only, to drag from its station the figure which was holding them in agony. His and theirs, and now even mine, against the driving undertow of the dark current that with mounting force was bearing us all backward towards some invisible brink. Once I had thought they were hanging on to him in desperation, but now the anguish had become so great that it seemed that they would rather drag him down than suffer the torture of being held by him against such a drag. Perhaps, though, those nearest him were still set with a passionate determination not to be distracted not to be drawn away from their grip on him. They longed for him to hold fast at whatever cost to themselves. But round me I could now sense in the growing press were others, dreadful, horrible as those ahead had seemed, much as I loathed and feared that they might turn on me in their exasperation at my possible distraction and show me what they were, this new rising, this new surge of darkness was worse they seemed pouring out of the ground like a foul dense smoke and I knew that when that came dense enough when it was quite opaque then the force the sharp cutting force that lacerated us with its tensile strength but with which it held us above the pit would be cut off and we should fall, a hideous volume of corrupt wreckage, down, down into deeps more horrible even than ourselves. For this new recruitment seemed composed wholly of a passionate despair, a despair that was raised to fury by the suggestion of any hope, any salvage. It had gone over wholly to the blackness and the depth, and its entire nature now only clamored to drag down everything into the void and destroy all resistance to the darkness. I still had a sense of my own position, so I still knew that this increasing pressure could come closer. The place was now packed. The crowding which had begun around the figure on the plinth had spread out from that until it was dense around me. But it had not yet actually pressed in on me. Somehow a minute slip of space... No more, as far as I could judge, than that which just permitted my body to crouch in this farthest southwest corner of the place. That ledge was still uninvaded, though hopelessly beleaguered. And I think, as clearly as I am sitting in this quiet room, that when that force, or those forces, did invade the actual spot, when they actually touched me, that my last insulation would be stripped from me. My last purchase with the outer world of physical things would be torn away. And if I were not to perish, then my soul, my soul would have to be able to stand that pressure nakedly, consciously. And through virtue of its own powers and its power to call on. As a friend, force greater than this enemy force that then would see me clearly as its prey. I, the sane, Economically interested, materially minded civil servant, I to become in a moment a spiritual Heracles that I might fight and conquer this dark hydra. I who till this hour had dismissed the very idea of spirituality as the most faded of human fancies. A kind of insane humour swept me at the thought, the kind of wild laughter you hear coming from a lunatic asylum at night when the moon is full shook me. Like an oncoming epileptic fit. There was one other alternative I knew. And just to keep off the spasm of laughter. Which I sensed would be a kind of capitulation. And the end of me. At least in this life. I worked it into my mind. That it hurt like a knife. I could of course cease to be the defeated stoic. I could call for help. Yes there was help. Help adequate, ample. I was drowning, but just ahead of me there was a grapple that I that could, if I called, even as the flood gripped me, could lay hold and drag me out. But the only way I can show my desperate path is by a crude illustration. If you were drowning in dark water and then just over your head you saw a grapple coming down. Would you let it get fast purchase on your flesh? If you realised that it was a white hot metal? Yes, it could drag you up. You would not drown. You You wouldn't drowning be better than that searing agony. I saw it in a flash. We all die voluntarily, just because the pain of being salvaged is too great. I think that was all I was meant to see then. For I now realise that the dense pack round me should by this time have invaded me, should have touched me. I ought to have become part of them and been involved in that final act. I ought now to be making that ultimate choice, the foul suffocating flood that flows forever down, or that searing grip which, if the soul could be parted, would tear it asunder. But I was not. Something, not myself, not the forces that had crowded around me, was now in action. I became aware that this was nothing that had to do with my own immunity. There was some immunity just where I was. Then my numbed mind had time enough, as the reprieve lasted, to do a little feeble thinking. Of course, it was the frontier, that very first current, that I had sensed. The first thing I had noticed about this awful place when it seemed lives ago I had blundered, trespassed into it. The frontier was there, in its way the deepest thing in that place, deeper than anything that had life or ever had had life. And I was safe then provided I was this side of it. The other forces couldn't cross it, they could try to involve me horrify me, attract me or drive me in panic to some extra temporal doom but they could not actually invade me as long as I was human and as long as I was just in this spot with that steady flowing river, a primal force between them and me with that knowledge dawned on my mind that I could, if I chose get away I was held only by an awful sympathy and a kind of prophetic sense I was seeing ahead to a crisis which one day I must meet, but which was not mine, now saved by sight, not by actual contact. I drew myself up slowly until I could feel my back against the bench back. I slid along sideways, keeping my eyes on that figure by the plinth. It was true, I was withdrawing from that vortex. I was passing out of that field. The pack was as great, the pressure as awful. The doubtful issue of that battle of the abyss was still sustained with, indeed, mounting agony. But I was already making a greater and greater distance between myself and them. There was less purchase on them, and they were, I felt sure, less and less aware of me as something that was part of that tide, and so for or against one or other of the two implacable forces. I felt my right hand at the bench's end. I got myself somehow on my feet. I was in the tunnel passage. The door was at my hand. I took it and swung myself out onto the grass. I clapped to, and with that little noise came again a great noise, a fresh outburst of firing, bombing and roaring planes, a bound of excitement, and yes, the light went through my veins. I never I'm never going to see the middle 40s again, but I ran like a schoolboy headlong down the hill, a boy racing through a bonfire. There was a fine one ahead. The house was well alight. I found I was being joined by others. The organised squads of firefighters were all off lower down in the town fighting the first big hits. We elderlies raced along. It was our show. There were ladders up the side of the blazing building. And need enough, there were people caught up aloft. We pushed to be first up. My energy was evidently greater than that of those round me, and well it might be. I remember the sheer joy I felt swarming up that ladder towards the flames, and how that inner glow mounted in me as I scrambled into the room. Two small boys were huddled in their bedstead, while flames poured through the door and had carpet and curtain already in their hold. I'll never again feel such spirits, I suppose that is what Homer calls the joy of battle, but there was no hate in it. Tell the truth, I felt more like a kind of Father Christmas. There was something jolly, cheery, sane and exultant about those flames. Dangerous, of course, like a tiger or huge anaconda, but beautiful in their lashing strength and coil. And the children, I felt, that I had covered not only for myself, But for them, yes, and to spare, I roared at them through the roaring of the fire. A burning house, when it is well alight, makes much the same sound that an enthusiastic meeting makes when its orator has made a splendid poriation, 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 oration, 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 oration. P-E-R, and then oration, oration, (coughs) oration. The same tide of enthusiasm. I caught them up and they seemed light as bolsters, rushed them toward the window, laughing so loud that they were caught they caught my spirits and began to laugh too. I don't know how we got down, ladder. There was a lot of help, of course, but we ought to have broken our necks. And the friendship at the foot. Have I ever liked human beings? Have I ever seen a group of human beings so happy with each other? The closest of relations couldn't care for each other more than we cared and liked. Yes, loved each other in that wild light as the house in front of us, like a furnace, collapsed into ruin. As we turned away, it stood by itself and there was no more to do in salvage and set off to find places and food and treatment for the inmates one or two had scars, I saw, but not my two. I felt with silly pride I saw a car sweep up. Out it jumped the doctor. He caught sight of me and I saw something of the same cheeriness in his face. He shouted across to me as the first aiders brought up their quarry. This is the stuff to blow cobwebs from the mind, eh? No more difficulties for a long time after this blowout, I shouted back some cheery reply. We all got to bed in the later of the early hours. My lodging house hadn't been hit. I woke up with the two two sides of my mind so far apart that I couldn't be said to be in anything but a kind of a rest. I knew I must wait till the two came together and then decide what should be the policy and behaviour pattern for that thing that called itself me. I ate my breakfast and was told while at it that one of the best hits I had been on our office, the old Seaside Hotel, and that till some sort of order could be brought it was no use for me to report for work. I then spent as much time as I could over my food. My body was hungry, and well it might be. I let it have its head, or perhaps it's more truthful, if less nice, to say its stomach. Afterward, I smoked in a small place at the back of our house, where the sun made a restful pool of light. As I smoked, I glanced toward the countryside. I could see from where I sat, the shoulder of the down, the crest of the slope down which I had come pelting last night. I've finished my pipe. Then I knocked it out, walked through the house, out into the street and turned up the hill. I went slowly but deliberately. I suppose something in me knew what it was going to do. I know I was content to allow it to show its hand when it would. After I had left those last two desolate houses behind me, I began to be able to see the top of the chapel bell coat, C-O-T-E. I became fully in sight when I was not more than a hundred yards away from it. So steep was the rise that side, and I noticed it was set a little farther toward the slope, leading down to the next cone. I went toward it. I never approached it from the, that side before. That was why I had never seen, never suspected, that the place had two doors. The one I had used under the bell coat was on the southwest corner, but there was another, just a small set flat in the north wall, not far from the east end. It must lead into the sanctuary. Well I could look at it with a good archaeological conscience, for the first glance suggested it would be paid inspection. True enough, it did. There was a simple round arch, but the bolster moulding was richly embossed with those sinister big beak bird heads. Their beaks hooked round the roll of the moulding. The cushion capitals of the two small side pillars were also richly carved. But as this work was small and finely carved, it had weathered more. I couldn't make out what the figures wound into the curves of the small. Pillar capitals were meant to convey. There were two on each side. That on the left showed one figure seated close to the top of the capital. Indeed, his seat or throne was made out of the abacus of the capital. The other figure was standing underneath, looking up as far as I could make out, and with coils of some sort draped round him. The figures on the left are composed in the same way, but the lower standing figures had no drapery of coils about him, but if it were not an effect of the weathering of the stone, seemed to be stippled over with dots. I didn't spend much time trying to make out these little puzzle pictures, if they were that, for the piece the resistance was that the door had a type tra- tra- type Ty- type type TYM for typernum, P-A-N for November, U-N for mother. Taipanum, had a taipanum. The space between the arch and the lintel of the door itself was a panel of stone, a semicircular slab, and was filled with a composition, a carving in high relief. Though worn, it was easy to make out the vigour of the archaic execution and also the force with which the subject had been rendered. It was a Michael at the moment of his victory. His spread wings with immense pinions filled the upper path of the half circle. With a pill driver's force, he was striking home with his spear. And under him was a tangle of webbed and talon wings, of claws, fangs and spines. In the middle of which was contorted a face of real malignity. I stood looking at this fine piece of symbolism for a little while, and then my eye was caught by something lower down. On the door was fastened, rather incongruously, a little picture frame glazed with weather-blurred glass. Through it I could see, however, a piece of paper, which the glass had not been able really to protect. Rain had made contour maps on it of various brands, and the writing on the paper had been brought by the sun to almost the same faded forms. I started to decipher it, in the either way one will read anything that is not quite easy to make out.
1: When I had finished
0: I was sure I had got all that it had to say, and also that I had found what, when I set out on my walk, my mind had made itself up to find. The text ran as follows. The curate attached to the chapel of ease of Saint Michael gives notice of the following services. I need not give them. The concluding sentence right. He also, he is also very willing to see anyone who will make a point. Sorry, they willing to see anyone who will make appointment with him previously should they desire spiritual direction or confession. A notice left at the address given below will find them, and an appointment to meet at this place can then be arranged. In the same angular italic handwriting that took my mind back to grandaunt's letters of my childhood, the name underneath was signed U. Saint J. Tuhill, Tuohill, T. U. O. H. I. L. L. Clerk in Holy Orders, S. T. P. And the address to Kimberley Drive. I was certainly not going to decline that invitation, however long it had been issued and disregarded I knew where Kimberley Drive was, I had just come up to it, come up, come up it, I knew where Kimberley, yeah, I had just come up it, for it was the lonely road that linked this spot with the town, a developmental failure on the early years of the century as its name showed, and number two must be one of that couple of prematurely aged houses which stood like float sand, left by the tide of local builders, speculative hope which had long retreated. I felt that I was now on track of enigma, which if I didn't solve might well become an obsession. For though in the full day and sunlight, I could treat the place as one of archaeological interest. I knew that this was but a film of surface distraction, but below I felt the pull of an immediate, instant, most present concern, something so present and so pressing that the obvious appearance of things, the smashed houses, some of them visible from here, down in the town, and this old accumulation of weathered stones. All history and the urgent present were somehow, if not irrelevant, at least without their clue, unless the strange forms of fancy could be understood. One thing I knew with rising certainty, either here lay a secret that would give me a new understanding of life, would make living incomparably more important to me than ever it had been and I think I can say I had not lived a life of triviality, or I should know that I myself was done, that some force subjective and fanciful to all others, but to me fatally powerful, had laid hold of me and was going to drag me from the world where men lived their ordinary lives into a darkness from which there was no returning. That, you see, was my choice, a meaning far more comprehensive, vast and intense than ever I had suspected since I became what I held to be an informed man, or, in brief, madness. I am not, you may judge, the kind of man who goes out of his way to call on strangers, even should I have felt the need of company other than my office afforded and the social life of the place demanded. I had not had the kind of background in upbringing and vocation that would make me pick out an venture in companionship what was obviously an old-fashioned clergyman and pretty obviously eccentric also. But without a moment's hesitation, just as a dog goes that at last has a breast-high scent after questing, I wheeled round and went down the hill. I did not even try to see whether that small door was open. I knew the chapel had no further knowledge to give me, though it might, and pretty certainly it would, as its chosen hours give me, dreadful call to witness something I could not understand, and to be involved in that which I could not help but which could undo me. The two houses rose in view in a couple of moments. I guessed, rightly, that I should come on number two first. The curate in charge certainly preferred to live as near as possible to his post, or as far as possible away from the world and his isolation was really quite considerable. I had never looked at the houses as I went down in the dusk, hastening to get home. Now I saw that number one was obviously, in the dreary house agent's term, unten... untenanted... tenant, untenanted... It's a bit hard to say that. untenanted...
1: untenanted...
0: And when I came close to the two, there was really little to prove that number two on any agent's books was in any better standing. It was of three stories, if one does not count as a story the result of that strange excavatory passion which for a century made people of means dig holes under their houses, called basements, in which they secreted their domestics, no doubt part of the process which they could, called keeping the lower classes in their place. This house had a basement though there was no reason why it should have tunnelled its own foundations. Unoccupied occupied land was around it on every side save that of its Siamese twin. I amused myself with these fabian reflections but all the while I was getting up my courage for the interview and trying really to diagnose what sort of being I should meet. Surely just a withered eccentric, who for the sake of a few pounds per year keeps going a service unrequired but by any. That was the sane side of my civil service mind speaking. But it did not reassure me. For granted that would be all, as well it, it might, would that make things better? Would there be any comfort there just to find that this poor old piece of professional float stand living up in this stranded house and serving this piece of fossil ecclesiasticism, didn't know anything about the place he served and would treat me as only fit for the lunatic asylum. for of course he would be far too ancient ever to have heard of Freud and the grim edge to that would be that he would be right but if he could throw no light on my mystery then the outlook for me was dark indeed I knew enough of psychoanalysis, partly the only kind of psychology emitted by us economically obsessed intellectuals, to know that it certainly could not help me. I stopped a moment abreast uh, of the house and looked squarely at it. It was just clean. The windows had been washed sometime. There were faded curtains in the window of the ground floor, and in the room above, they were drawn in the way in which gentility of that date defended us, feeling that it was far better to live in darkness than that people should be able to look in on your domestic intimacies. Following the rule of the house, even the top windows complied, though only only birds could have acted as peeping tongs
1: at that level.
0: Dark blinds of the material aid, raids had made obligatory, even now in the morning light. Kept the place looking stomp and perhaps, I thought, the reverend gentleman had so disturbed the night through the air that his housekeeper had advised him to stay in bed. And as I said that, and tried to smile at the force of security it gave, I went up the three steps which led to the door. I was to be exact on the first when the door opened, and sure enough, there was a housekeeper. At least I caught a glimpse of what used to be called A very respectable body of those years which are certified, I believe, by canon law in the Roman Church as being over canonical age. But before I could tell more, the door shut and my attention was distracted. For down the steps was coming a man, a clergyman, but quite the reverse of the figure I had only begun to shape as suitable to issue from this place and carry the name on the church door. I expect you guess that I don't take very readily to what Trollope used to call men of the cloth. So you see, it is a kind of discourteous atmosphere, discourteous compliment. When I saw, when I say that I didn't take the man to the clergyman, because I took him at once. Yet there was no doubt as to his profession. There was that forbidding, inconvenient black clinched by that deliberately inconvenient reverse collar. Even the black Homeburg which he allowed himself to wear looked like a same piece of secularism which had, had had an accident and been drowned in ink, after which its original owner had given it to a church bazaar. B-A-Z-A-A-R but I was really in no mood to try and amuse myself with these surface things. Granted, this man was quite unlike anything that I had expected. Still, I should have to speak to him for he alone, slenderest of hopes, could help me. I hesitated though just because at the very first glance I liked the man I shrank from showing that I was as good as a nearest wreck. What help could this fine, upstanding man be to me? Better a cobweb scholar than there might be a ghost of a chance that an ecclesiastical bookworm might have found some reference in one of his folios, pointing toward the dark passage into which I had strayed and where I was caught. But this man, who might have played cricket for his country or rode for his university, of course he will be of some use in a way. Last night, with all the smashing and burning, odd as his faith and cut of cloths might be, he was clearly a man who would awake confidence, at least among people in normal distress, such as death and mutilation. I don't know whether I would not have let him go past, as, like Milton's devil, I stood dividing the swift mind, I think I might, anyhow, as it was, as it as it was he who turned as he went past and said in a voice of reassuring as his appearance, "Excuse me, sir, were you going to call here?" "Yes, yes," I hesitated, seeing I was at some sort of loss. He went on, "I was sent for this morning. I ought to have been able to get here before, but as we all know, last night." We had other duties suddenly sent us. Can I be of any use? He paused and then, as I delayed, he added, If you were going to call on Dr. Tuerhill? His question made me say again, Yes, yes, Dr. Tuerhill. I was wanting to see you for a few moments if. I am not Dr. Tuerhill. Dr. Tuerhill died yesterday. My name, if I may introduce myself, is, he hesitated a moment, Looked down at himself and smiled, looking back at me. Archdeacon Denshaw. I know I ought to be in my uniform when on active service, but somehow these times are making our trappings seem, in a way, incongruous. And last night to be running about in an ecclesiastical apron, frog coat, gaiters, and a shovel hat. Well, I just can't make it fit with first aid to the wounded. And, he added, in a grey tone which still had no solemnity in it, and last aid to the dying, every moment I like the man more. My bishop, he went on, is a real father in God, and he lets me run about in these work clothes as much as I like. But forgive my talking of myself. I thought I owed you this self-identification. As archdeacon, I am naturally sent for these cases, particularly this case he had. He waited a moment. I began to suspect that he sensed he might be of some service. And I had already sensed that he was the kind of man who was always being called on for such services because he could yield. Them. I began again my hesitant yeses, and then added, I did want to see Dr. Turhill, but my hesitancy drove me from the point again. How could I open such a subject, least of all to a man who, however kindly, was evidently as sane as a stockbroker? I temporised with a question, may I ask when Dr. Turhill died? He neither showed surprise at my question, nor tried to parry it with one of his one of his but answered his housekeeper tells me that he was unwell yesterday morning and she persuaded him to rest but that after keeping him quiet after his breakfast he had celebrated that morning in the small church he served. He insisted on going out to matins M-A-T-I-N-S she heard him get ready and then she says there was a silence somehow this alarmed her And she went up to his sitting room. He was lying on the floor in his robes, dead. He must have had a sudden heart attack. He had been ill, I believe, for some time. But he was a most conscientious man in all his duties. He paused and added, such as he considered them to be, and then added more to himself than to me, a remarkable man. I don't think I ever met anyone like him and the more one knew him, though I never could say I knew him at all well or saw much of him, the more of his, his uniqueness struck one he stopped. <laughs> the fact that Dr. Turhill was dead was puzzling me at the back of my mind. Finally I saw I must somehow keep this new informant of mine until I could think out whether there was any way in which he could help me, or indeed any way whereby I could make him understand my past. I began to realise that the death of a man with whom I had never talked in my life, and whose very appearance was really unknown to me, might prove a gravely serious matter. Perhaps for me the gravest of all possible matters. Would you, I asked, please tell me a little more about Doctor Churhin. I think If you could do that, I would be more easily able to make clear to you why I wanted to see him, what, in a way, I hoped he might be able to tell me. The Archdeacon nodded. I'd be very glad to. I didn't really know much about him, though I suppose I knew as much about him as most people. He was a real solitude. In fact, as far as we know, he had no relatives. That is partly why I had had to be here and, as it happens, I shall have to wait about, for we have notified his solicitor by telegram, As he is in London, I must be on the spot until we hear from him and get his approval for the service and the funeral. So, if you like, let's go on up onto the Dow and sit in the sun there. The house within is not very cheerful. I readily consented, and in a few minutes we were up by the chapel again. On the south side of this building, we shall find some warmth. I think I can tell you all I know in 20 minutes or half an hour. We sat down on the splayed footings of the south wall with our backs against it. No spot could have appeared more peaceful, No building more at home and mellowed into its surroundings. The lichens spread over the stone-tiled roof. Grasses and late-flowering weeds grew from the courses of the masonry. Yet the torment of the air raid last night had had seemed to me infinitely more human and friendly than this quiet place. And the archdeacon began where my thoughts were. "Are you at all an antiquarian?" he asked. As a beginning, you mean, I answered. Do I do I not remark that this is quite an interesting building? Yes, his reply was part of the man's native frankness that made him immediately reassuring. This chapel is quite an antiquarian quarry and, what is more, it builds in with the story of the man about whom I am going to tell you what I know. And I think... You would wish to know all you can. He did not turn to me, but I felt he understood increasingly that he was not wasting his time, and that though it all seemed a casual encounter, there might be more here than appeared. As certainly there was, in the spot where we sat in the quiet noon sunlight. First, then, he went on, I'll tell you about Dr. Tourhill. Then I'll be able, like a good lecturer, he smiled, to show how this building fits into our narrative. And then you will perhaps tell me your part and what I can do to help there. Dr. Torehill was a member of the Church of Ireland. It was one of the few churches of which one may say that it may possibly die out. It will be a pity if it does. For it could have gone on, I believe, playing a part in that strangely moving body, the churches of Christendom, all split, most mutually repellent, but all needed, I believe. Like their discords, making some harmony too high and rich for our ears that seldom like anything beyond unison. But don't think that Dr. Tuhil was a normal member of that church. The Church of Ireland being very close to and largely outnumbered by the Roman Catholic Church, tended to react to a rather exclusively positivism. Possit- True, it had thinkers like Sanday and right down to, that's a S-A-N-D-A-Y, and right down to Bernard and the Archie. The Archie, the Archie, the Ar- Darcy, or Darcy, Darcy. D in an apostrophe, a big A, R-C-E-Y, D-A-R-C-E. But on the whole, it was losing ground. It represented a class. And that class, after Ireland won her independence, was a diminishing class. As far as the Church of Ireland had identified herself with what had been called the ascendancy, the Protestant rule in Ireland, the victory of nationalism was bound to be in some way the defeat. That, however, was not the reason for Dr. Tourhill's leaving Ireland. He left before what it is called over there the troubles. Not that he hadn't had troubles, but in the other direction, and of a purely ecclesiastical sort. You can gather if you do not actually know that the Church of Ireland was not being has not been at home with what it called. High church views. The reaction of a body which is still proud to call itself Protestant towards sacerdotalism. I think that's pronounced correctly. S A C R D O T A L I S M. Sacerdotalism. Or indeed, sacramentalism. Well, you are old enough to remember the kind of foot that used to be made in this country about that kind of thing. But here is the rather unusual thing. Dr. Twirhill was a sacramentalist, yes, and a sacerdotalist, but he was in no wise inclined to favour Rome. Some members of the Irish church had always maintained that they were the real descendants and inheritors of the early Celtic church. Of course, Berry had shown that Patrick could not be called apostate. nay more that he was a Romanizer, winning Ireland, specifically for Rome. And if there was a Saint Palladius before him, he too probably looked as loyally to the city of the Seven Hills. Still, Celtic Christianity, however it started, soon became a specific development, and a very intense one. Not only in a missionary effort that did much to win back Europe from paganism, from the Elbe to Calabria. Calabria, sorry. Calabria. But also by an intensity of contemplative practice. By a kind of a into prayer, which has seldom been equaled and never surpassed, surpassed life. He stopped suddenly and questioned, do you wonder why? Like the man in the story, I am beginning with the dawn of history, when you are concerned with events of today. I smiled back at him. I think I have enough of a clue to hold on. Well, give me a little dope. This is not a parson talking historical shop. It really is needed if we are to understand something which I believe is quite a mystery. And he turned round and quietly put his hand on my arm. I believe you may have found even more mysterious than I know. Perhaps we may help each other. That was certainly reassuring. There was a real good will not to miss any part of the clue or any of the information that might be needed. I settled down to listen again. Well, my new friend went on. Whether such views are historical or not, I only know a very faint second hand. What I do know, with ample evidence, is that they were held most strong by Dr. Tuohu. He held them so strongly that he felt he must not yield them. They were a sacred heritage, a light that must not be extinguished. He was a fine scholar. TCD, as the famous Old Dublin University called itself, could turn out scholars the equal of any in Europe. True, they gave their DD loosely. They gave their DD loosely, but so have many other universities, which have fine records of for learning. And Doctor Turhill refused to earn his save by the hard way. I think it was not merely part of his old-fashioned style, but his gentle protest against the cheapening of the doctorate that made him always write his title. Not as Didi, but in the older style, STP. Still, scholarship, he felt, is only the handmaid of religion. And no religion, as he saw it, he had given his life. He could have lived quietly and, as as his needs were most frugal, comfortably. I mean, with all he required. Comfort, as the world knows it. I doubt if he ever sensed, and had he been told of it, he would have called it luxury or concupiscence, 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 concupiscence. But he felt he had his mission. Oh, no, nothing to do with what used to be called the mission field or its rival and social services. No,
1: I'll just change that.
0: Oh no, nothing to do with that. What used to be called the mission field was its new rival to social services. No, his duty was to keep alike the real tradition, as he called it. You'd have you have thought such an out-of-the-way idea would not have disturbed anyone. But on Ireland, things are not so simple as that. He was accused by his own church's large Protestant majority of being really a Roman boring from within. And the Romans also had a word to say about him. They said he was in league with the devil. Now, how did a quiet, rather stiff scholar manage to get such certainly unsolicited testimonials to the quality of his spirituality? No, don't think I'm making light of the matter, but I do want us to be as objective as we can. And the dear old man himself had his own sense of humour, as what Irishman has not. Of course it makes for misunderstandings, but as it also makes for humility, there's gain. It was he, indeed, who used that very phrase about testimonials, to me, when we were considering his. His offer to, how shall I put it, practice here. Well, what he had actually done, and it doesn't really sound too hair-raising, does it? Was to gather together in the district where he lived, some 20 or 30 miles north of Dublin, a small group of people, a confraternity, we called it. And he linked up with them a few, not more than three or four, I believe, of clergy, of his church. The place he chose was Mount Melory, N-E-L-L-E-R-Y, where there is a ruined religious house, once confusion, destroyed in one of Ireland's unnumbered earlier troubles. There he set about, he told me, and others confirmed, to make some kind of free contemplative order. He called it, I think, research into prayer. He would tell me little more, and a man's enemies are certainly not good witnesses but I gathered that he became increasingly interested and indeed absorbed in intercessory prayer. The speaker stopped. Do I bore you, he asked. I was surprised at the question and answered, go on, it deals with this man, doesn't it? I was not going to show more of my hand till so I was sure if this could be help or only a false hope. Yes, he answered, yes, it certainly deals with this man. Then, with a more encouraging simplicity that gave me the further sense of trust and confidence, he added, you see, I fear I really know so little about the subject, but with a sudden emphasis, I know that I don't know. My bishop, whom I've told you is a real father in God, owns our ignorance of this ultra violent end of the religious life. He's a good scholar considering the number of committees he has to sit upon and not without holiness, considering the fact that he now has to sit in the House of Lords. One day I was complaining that I was more of a Mason than a Catholic because I had to spend all my time looking after buildings and not souls. He laughed and asked me if I ever heard of one of the favourite moot discussions among young theologians in the Middle Ages, it was on the cheerful question, "Can an archdeacon be saved?" I made a wry face at this pleasantry, but he comforted me by pointing out that the young sprigs of spiritual wisdom did think there was a chance of an archdeacon's being touched by the light. He was a sort of piebald creature, but they took for granted that a bishop. Made them absolutely opaque. What they were putting their money on was the poor parish priest. Which brings me back to our man. The long and the short of it was that he had to leave. Mystics don't have much of a time anywhere, and there in Ireland, between a rather crusted and dry Protestantism and a Catholicism vigorous enough to be able to show its active dislike of all competitors. Why? The poor man had no purchase. I rather think he may have the speaker paused. Well, he went on. That's premature anyhow. We can come to it later. He settled here in this West Diocese, in this small town and had evidently been here some time when he decided to write to our bishop. He handed the letter to me as far as I remember. It ran as follows. In courteous but archaic language, he presented his compliments, made his apologies for intrusion and then stated his request. It was an odd one. He wished to be briefly appointed as curate in charge of this chapel. He pointed out that the building had been carefully restored but was not being used and he ventured to add that should the bishop accede that's A-C-C-E-D-E to his request he would wish to be allowed to shoulder the upkeep of the house of God as he was a man of some small means and few courts. Well, you know, that kind of offer is rare. Even the best of men want a living and those who are willing to give services and also also supply the resources are very uncommon. Of course, he enclosed his letters of credence and other evidences. Evidences. We could and did take these up and they were all accurate. Indeed, in scholarship, his record was more remarkable than than that he had disclosed and one or two of the references he gave brought back from people whose word was worth attention, something like eulogy. Though one did say that of the exact quality of his cultus there might be a discussion, but no question at all of theology, still less of morality. My final, of course, is that when to a hard-worked bishop and to an archdeacon obsessed with structural costs, repairs, dilapidations, restorations, new church building, there comes an offer which might possibly be accessible from someone who is ready to take a building off their hands and promises also to put it back into actual use. Well, such offers start with a certain material weight in their favour. I was asked by my bishop then to go and see and report. I found Dr. Tourhill in that house, out of which you met me coming. He was living in austere simplicity. Books there were in plenty, and when he gave me tea, for so I stayed a little while with him, it was served with that queer mixture of nationalism and taste that somehow I associate with Ireland. The porcelain porcelain was that soapy glazed iridescent stuff made, I think, near Dr. Chuhill's home and, and called, I believe, Belik The silver was very elegant. Later 18th century I could see the harp with the crown over it, the hallmark, you know, of the old Irish office of silver issue, and the spoons, rat-tailed. But we didn't talk connoisseurship, connoisseurship, (laughs) connoisseurship. He had a great simplicity about him, and asked as soon as we were seated what he might tell me about himself further than the information he had already forwarded so that I might form an opinion whether his request could be granted. We got on very well, I think. There was something very, how shall I put it, remote about him, but not inflexible. He had, if if you take me, his centre of gravity far within and because of that he could come forward with a certain ease of outer courtesy which in no wise committed him, still less gave him away. You felt all the while that though he had deployed and seconded an ample division of attention to look after you with courtesy and forward the matters in hand, he himself, having dispatched this embassy to the frontier, sat back in some distant capital, concerned, maybe with up of affairs and interest, until his messengers sent for firm instructions. I asked him, frankly, what could have caused trouble in the Morne district over in Ireland, and so spoiled his work there. His reply amused me, almost startled me. Inexperience, Mr Archdeacon, inexperience. His voice had that finish to the consonants, that slight breath to the vowels, which distinguishes an Irish accent from a brogue, brogue, brogue? B-r-o-g-u-e. I raised my eyebrows as a question. We were pioneers, or rather the explorers I am sure you have been too busy to study the Celtic church's origins, as we few scattered and provincial students of necessity look to the pit from which we have been digged, the rock whence we were hewn. There are many mysteries about it, much neglected. I myself was set on my very tentative researches when I came as a college student on the passage which tells of the twelve monks from the Tybade, T-H-E, B A I D, who came right round from Egypt to Ireland and lie now buried at Clonmacnoise on the Shannon. That's the River Shannon. Uh, That's C L O N, M for mother, A C, N for November, O I S E. Clonmacnoise. 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 The Desert Fathers were men. Who took to the kingdom of heaven by violence. But they took it, though their casualty rate, no doubt, was high. Their spirit certainly shone out again. Much heat and sunlight. With the cult of Bridget, the Mary of the Gales, flagellation, long immersions in ice cold water. He smiled. Please have another cup of tea. Bodhidharma, who brought the severe ferradin form of meditation, ferradin, uh, T-H-E-R-A-V-A-D-I-N, ferradin form of meditation, the prosthetism of the East, into China, specifically commended Chinese tea as an aid to contemplation. With these violent physical methods, they held their night long vigils in those dry wall built huts of stone. Vigils as long as any contemplative has, I believe, attempted. Of course some of them went through and of course oh so many perished on the past before entering the promised land. Well sir, I found that books could take me to the door but not over the threshold. So I went, yes, I went to the oratory of Galerius, G-A-L-L-E-R-I-U-S, and those other shrines, hardly more than huts, out on the rock islets, and those by that lake whose gloomy shore Skylar never warbled O'er though, Tommy Moore, did it wrong, Tommy Moore, but at night These places are indeed austere. Such knowledge keeps its secrets well. But I found enough to know two things. First, that there lay my vocation. And secondly, that I must find others to go with me. Down to Gehenna. Gehenna? G-E-H-E-N-N-A. So Henna. Jehenna or up to the throne he travels to the fastest he travels the fastest who travels alone that was written by one who had not actually trodden the upper road it may be true of the lower the archdeacon paused and turned to me I am giving you an impression of the man am I giving you an impression of the man he asked I do want to And so I'm trying to recall in detail that interview. You see, he had humour and a certain contemporaneity. Like contemporary. Um, Contemporaneity. Contemporaneity. contemporary Contemporaneity. One who knows about Buddhism in China is not provincial. One who quotes Kipling on the spiritual life is not a hidebound ecclesiastic. I asked my friend to go on, said, said that it fascinated me. Indeed it did, for surely here was emerging a picture that might fit with my own experience. Well, Archdeacon Denson resumed. I asked Dr Tourhill. Homophil, like To help to tell me a little more precisely what he took his vocation to be. He replied with some eagerness, an active. An active. Perhaps I smiled. I know he smiled back. Of course, he added, I mean that I am not a pure contemplative. And then, with a sudden gravity, I found I found it in those little Queens, yeah? C-O-I-G-N-S. Those little queens of stones that look like a fossilised giant beehive. Or an overturned petrified boat. Those oratories that are, some of them, so small that only one person can be in them at a time. And he must kneel. I found there in the long nights where my service lay. He stopped for a long while and then said one word, intercession. Perhaps he sensed that I felt the need of asking some kind of further question, but was, as this was true, at a loss, how to frame my inquiry. Anyhow, while I was seeking about for for some way to obtain further information, he began again. It is a vast subject, just to map. Just to know by what job calls in that great final passage. By the hearing of the ear and the patriarch may also be cited when one adds, however dimly, and now my eyes see and I abhor myself in dust and ashes. His voice had taken on a tone of great depth, almost of sorrow, and he seemed for the time to forget me. But pulling himself together with a sigh, he added, I should have explained to you a few moments ago what I meant by that word inexperience. For I meant in fact two things, both of which might advise your judgment as to whether or not to grant my request. The first thing was a surface matter and the one in which I hope and believe I have learned my lesson. There is an inexperience which leads to results which indeed do no more harm than giving the full Harley something of a job to. If I may put it in technical language, just to save time, for as I've said, that matter is closed and ended with my leaving Holy Island. When people are young in the life of prayer, they find some things which vastly intrigues them. It is exciting, you know. I bowed, but I hoped it was more an act of contrite ignorance than knowing assent. Vastly exciting, oh yes, if I may use the phrase, in quite a vulgar way. For the door which leads from the world of the five senses does not lead directly to the present chamber of the eternal. No, not even into the anteroom. Rather into a passage in which there are many doors for the for the for the beyond, which is within, is a veritable labyrinth, and we have now wandered out so far that our way home is marked. If I may may slightly change my simile, by many strange byroads. Now, naturally, these are to the beginner all fascinating, but one alone is the way. Nor is that. While he is on the way he sees many attractive objects on the wayside To drop similes as it is put in Sanskrit The city come before enlightenment The appearance of powers dawned on the soul Before it has true sight purged by the light eternal Perhaps he saw I was certainly more than a bit mystified He smiled and went on I've said, that's all I, That's all over. The hotter-headed, the hotter-headed of the people who were with me in Ireland were soon, and that happens often discouraged after their first excitements. I can see now, it was all to be good, all to the good. The Lord is merciful to beginners and sends them back to the common safe ways with a gentle blow of his staff, for fear they would fall headlong over the cliff into the voids. The blow is, of course, out of attacks. The people we would help accused us of witchcraft and sorcery. And, of course, our own church gave us no support. It taught me to my great ignorance. Who was I to be attempting this task of helping the living by prayer while I knew so very little about the rules of the vast unseen universe In which we live. And had I stayed at that level. I might have become some simple sort of healer. Not knowing his powers. A risk to those who would help. Yes. And a peril to himself. No. I was to be taught. Laus. Dio. Dio. Laus. Dio. L-A-U-S. And then D-E-O. It was then. And not till then that I began to plumb my own ignorance. It was then that at last I received my first hint of what initiation actually may mean. To quote the great Paul, I hold not myself to have comprehended, but I have apprehended. Yes, I now know where my service, which is also my education, lies. Later on there may be work more obvious to be done. Meanwhile, there is this basic service to be yielded and this basic training in the ordeals of prayer to be completed. I will only add and conclude that I venture to think true intercession is always to some degree vicarious sacrifice. He paused and then very gently said, perhaps again to quote Job, I have only succeeded in darkening counsel with words. All I was trying to say, is that I have been taught a certain amount about the vast subject of intercession. I feel its supreme importance. And I am asking that I may, in what I believe to be this most crucial, I am almost said most favored spot, carry on the work to which my work in Ireland was my first step. We were silent for some time. And then he said quite cheerfully, I do hope the bishop will be able to concede my request. I would wish to say all the appointed officers in the small church above here, celebrate the sacraments and offer my services to any who might wish to avail themselves and not, he smiled, prove a nuisance to my fellow clergy. I pointed out that not even the house he was in would be to his cure of soul." that the chapel was technically a chapel of ease. It was meant to serve purposes that parishes could not serve. He could hope for no congregation for the purposes for which the place was built had long ceased to be operative. And I added, thank God, but I didn't say more. The archdeacon stopped, got up and then looking down at me said, I wonder if you understand, perhaps you do. But I felt the first sense of what is rightly called the uncanny, that is, what the canny man can't ken. When Dr Tuhill remarked, almost casually, almost to himself, that was what drew me to the place. There is a need there. As the archdeacon used that word uncanny, I know it sounds strange, but hope actually stirred in my mind as a man left in a dungeon may hear with deep relief the steps of his rescuers stumbling down the shaft that leads to where he is lying but I was too nervous to call out yet for fear I'd frighten help away anyhow he had begun speaking again let me before ending as I promised with this place finish with its incumbent. For he did become so. I have to own he had left me in doubt. Because I was rising to go, he said. My particular concern, sir, is with the mind, the spirit. Do not think I would despise those who have the vocation to tend man's body and estate. His threefold need calling for a threefold service. I have... Corresponded with a member of a religious order in this country, in the north. He is now with God. But toward the end of his life, of prayer and preaching, he found that through his prayer he had been let have access to minds and hearts long closed to all words, however eloquent. He found he had a vocation to the hopelessly insane, to homicidal lunatics, and such strayed souls. He could go into the asylum and stay with such as the padded cell and bring them forth healed. Of course, he had spiritual discernment. Naturally, therefore, he did not heal right and left. As I have said, no one who has the vision equal to the power does that. Are we not told? There were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none were healed save Naaman, the Syrian, (laughs) Naaman, N-A-A-M-A-N. Do you mean, I asked, that you are interested in psychotherapy? Dr. Turhill paused, then said, Yes, in the deepest sense of the word, and with the strongest wish that my spiritual discernment may be equal indeed may exceed any power to aid that may be vouchsafed me that may be vouchsafed me. Well we parted at that. As I've said, I was puzzled by the ending. I reported to our bishop, not long before that, one of his colleagues had done a very brave thing. In his diocese he had a tumbled down church On the fringe of one of the large towns A clergyman asked that he might have it to start there A ministry of healing After consulting with some able and open-minded doctors That bishop decided to let this work be ventured Under constant supervision It was of some considerable use for a number of years Our bishop felt that he should not be less courageous There was nothing against the man much to be said for him. The chapel did need someone to take care of it and, after all, we were not sure that Dr. Turhill would attract a single visitor to hear him, let alone submit to his direction. At the worst it would mean that its upkeep costs would be met and that the services would be said to empty air. Though, I would add, that I myself greatly doubt if a service devoutly said is ever said to vacancy. Well, I inquired, when I used to be in the town, how Dr Tourhill was getting on. I seldom had time to get up to his house. But the rural Dean, whose church is near the station, knew about him and had been hospitable. He had asked the doctor to read a paper to their Deanery Society. He smiled as he told me that, though they had all liked the reader, the subject had been well above their practical heads. It had been on the oddness of the title stuck in his mind. A consideration of the stages of the marred and the perished soul had set out in the 13th century Flemish tractate entitled The Mirror of Simple Souls. The souls may have been simple, but... They seem to have been conjoined by very subtle minds. So, concluded my royal dean, we have now not we have not ventured to ask Dr. Turhill to address us again, and he seemed quite content to be a lookout man, leaving us in the hold of the ship. Once, however, I did get up, not long ago, and I own on that occasion I was a little disquieted. I thought Dr Tourhill looked very warm, but to be quite frank, that was not the real source of my sense of misgiving. That arose from something he said which I do think was strange. To my inquiry as to whether people were attending the services, he replied that there were a few on summer evenings and then added, my request of them that they never sit anywhere but in the last pew of the church. That surely was a queer request. The archdeacon had been walking up and down in front of me as he spoke and now turned and looked down at me. I felt myself start, but, but hope I did not show it. And a moment after he went on. Dr. Truhill added that as only one or two persons came, the back pews held them well enough. But the quest was odd, and it was and it was put with a certain urgency that was oddly disturbing. I think I got out of it by saying that if there was room in the pew for all who dropped in, right and good, that he then added, I wouldn't ask it if it were not important, if it were not to their interests. Puzzled me more, but as you know, it is not wise to speak when you are puzzled. I was rushed for I was rushed for time anyhow, the vice of all administrators, and had to go. And that was the last time I saw him alive. The archdeacon stopped his slow walk to and fro in front of me, and putting out his hand to pull me to my feet, said. Now come and see the place. Eva repays study and p- perhaps tells us something about the man who served it. He led me around to the east end and so we came to the little door on the north side. I told him I had admired the Taipanam, t- but he, he but had been puzzled by the carving in the cushion capitals of the pillars. It gives the original use of the, of the place, though, he replied, and then pointed out the figure, which on the left capital stood under the figure thrown in what he said was cloud and with a small object in its hand. This lower figure had, as I had noticed, something like lines of spaghetti trailing up around it. Those, he said, Are the Romanesque Carver's Convention for Flames. Now look at the corresponding figure on this right-hand capital. I said I thought this figure had specks or spots drilled on it. That, he added, is the convention of the time for something as bad as burning, leprosy. This chapel, I've said, was a chapel of ease, that is, it was to give ease to the comfortable people down below in the little town and to keep at more and to keep at more than arm's length that ghastly population that wandered in desolate places seeking rest and finding none. For this place, we know was built in that awful epidemic of the twelfth century, when leprosy or some frightful eroding skin disease became almost a plague. The panic was terrible. First, the poor creatures were driven out, stripped of home, family, estate. A hideous travesty of a service was held, and the victim was thrown a rough robe, a clapper, and a bowl, told that the curse had come on him for his sins, and expelled from mankind. Then men revolted against such cruelty, and first... Chapels such as this were built annexed Lazar houses, L-A-Z-A-R, Lazar houses. The scene you see on these post post heads is, of course, the story in stone taken from St. Luke of Dives and Lazarus. It was carved here, I suppose, to strengthen the brave priest, one of those unnumbered daemons of the past. Every time he went in to his hideous duties among that hellish congregation, he could steal his heart, knowing that if he secured these living corpses and ran the risk of becoming one himself, he was making it like making it less likely that after death he would be eaten by the undying flame and see Lazarus in heaven. Not a very high way of putting the call to a high service, but perhaps Better than nothing. I was now listening with a growing tension of interest. Well, he went on, the epidemic died down, and gradually that leprosy, as far as we know, disappeared. But apparently the chapel found another use as an ease to men's consciences. Yes. For from late times right down to the repeal of those harsh penal laws that hanged a man for stealing five five shillings worth of goods. The gibbet stood just up there on the mistaken assumption that if you saw the corpse of a man who had been killed for his crime you wouldn't commit it. Statistics leave no doubt as to the inaccuracy of that deduction. But men are stubborn about cruel mistakes and the regular little batches of men going on their way to be, in their phrase, turned off, were let turn in here for their last prayers. And afterward, their poor bodies, after they had served the needs of advertisement, were given their rest under these walls. So you see criminals and lepers have enriched this soil and the spiritual climate of this spot must surely have been infected with their despair. Nor was that all. Another grotesque custom, springing, as did the others, from man's worst counsellor and cruelest companion, fear, added its last quote of pain and frustration to the spot. People dreaded a suicide as much as a leper or a thief. He couldn't be buried in the good churchyard. No, he had to be hauled up to a lonely crossroad and there pegged down with an oak stake through his poor body to hold him from walking to a ghost, and upsetting the comfortable who found the life of the flesh good. You see, the two tracks meet here, and here these corpses were certainly taken. The archeologist who repaired this church and then handed it over to my office to keep an order actually dug. I have been told and found these poor bones with the stakes still stuck through the middle of them. The soil is good and dry here, and bone and oak last well in it. Now, he said, there's only one more item in this rather grim archeological catalog. And it's a little lighter, I think. Come inside the church for a moment. I followed them inside, entering under the image of Michael in his victory. And with the judgment of dives on either hand us. this door, I noticed too, was not locked. Well, the late incumbent certainly might not have stood in awe of thieves, considering the forces that I felt were given play in that place. And when we came inside, and for the first time I saw the spot which had been so terrible for me, I saw there was as little reason for locking up the inside of this as for padlocking the outside. Indeed, the inside was even bare for at least on the door through which we had come with some carving, here not a scratch. The restorer's money fortunately did not run to glass. My companion remarked in a whisper as we stopped a moment to look around. No doubt the walls, he added, must have ha- had those ochre outline drawings on them, but they were erased by time with protestant protest, protestant protest. The place had been now left with the free stone bare. The sunlight palely shone down from the high windows, the impression was one of curious vacancy. The old words came into my mind. Empty, swept and garnished. Yes, it was garnished, in a way. There was a stone altar with its steps, stone candlesticks and cross, a small pulpit reading desk against the north wall about a third of the way down and the pews. My mind for a moment couldn't remember whence that quotation about the house being left empty actually came. Then I recalled, yes, it was at. For in the short parable in which that line comes, you remember, the house is left like that while that, the house is left like that while that which had occupied it has been driven to leave and is wandering in dry places seeking rest and finding none. Even in the quiet daylight, even with the sense that the place was now empty, even with the sane, informed, kindly man, a sudden shudder took me, like those spastic rigors that shake a patient after a seizure. I don't know whether he noticed it, but I heard him saying, the spot I wanted to show you is down the other end. He led me to the west along the narrow lane between the pews, till we reached the last of these. That little square of worn stone there, he said, pointing to a block that rose just above the floor at the northwest corner and was given space by the north end of the last pew not being continued over on the last side of the church. That stone, or rather those stones, interested the later archaeologists more than the building itself. They are quite sure that that that, that is part of a Celtic church that stood on part of this site Small as this is, that was considerably smaller They judged by the footings But the really interesting thing about it Is that they discovered what I think they were right in calling an actual baptistry Baptistry, baptistry In fact, the whole little church was no more than a baptistry Perhaps an ovatory baptistry would be the best term for under that stone is a small vault and at the bottom of it is still a tiny spring. Those to be baptised as was of course the ancient rite went down into that well. The water flows out from there and the builders of that first church made a tunnel for its course so that it ran the whole length of their little shrine under the floor. I am told that was a common practice in the Celtic churches, and I rather suspect, he paused, that Dr. Turhill knew of that fact. The Celtic missionaries did not break the old customs or try to erase the lines of the old forces. Instead, down what had been a nature current, for no doubt this was a pagan holy well, they ran the fresh currents of the new grace. As he said that, he sat down in the pew what I had almost called my pew and I sunk I sank down beside him he was silent. so at last I said do you understand now why I wanted to see the man who had had charge of this place and had specially asked that he might work here do you know he replied all the while we have been together ever since we met on the steps of the dead man's house from the first glance I had of you I felt that if I could give you all the surface and ordinary information, that would be what you would need for your difficulty. And he paused a little. My information. You see, I felt there was some kind of mystery about our old friend, and as I left him in that bare little room, I felt he had gone to his grave with it. More, I felt that he had wished to share it with someone, and that I ought to have... Been that one and had failed. So now that I gave now so now that I have told you all I know of the man you so evidently wanted to see, and of the place where we are, and where he made some service to God and man that I didn't understand, will you tell me why you needed to see him? What you know? It was said with gentleness and simplicity, and I told him my whole story. As I, to, I have, as I have told it now. He, told, he did not wait long after I finished but rose. Thank you, he said. Now I feel pretty sure what he meant when he said that his life was sworn to the vocation of intercession. So that was his task. And I thought he was perhaps a man playing at life and the real things going on in the town and the large churches. Can an archdeacon be saved? But you see how everything fits. That congregation you so dreaded, that awful effort being made, that frontier or margin which kept you from them, you know, of course, that any water diviner would feel a shock in crossing that stream and that all through the Middle Ages, They used that test to find and destroy people who were using psychic powers without the church's approval. We had gone up toward the east end. At the altar he paused. Do you know what today is? He asked. I was at a loss and showed it. It is the feast of all saints. You see? Then why yesterday was a climax. Why did the church put this feast of all saints right at the tail of the year, among the wreckage and death of the life cycle? It is the culminating feast of final triumph. Today the faithful celebrate the victory of saints past it's the victory of saints past, present and future. And the church chose this date because as she rose in the ancient world she found that that world the ancient religions, which Jesus superseded, had always kept the day and eve before, October the 31st, as the awful day and night of bitter fast and haunted vigil. Men stayed close within their houses, leaving the ways to be trodden by invisible steps. They dared hardly to eat, still less work, for were they not in the presence, the food withering, were blasting presence of all the dead, the spirits, ghosts, the wretched souls denied life's table, hungry but unable to feed, grasping but unable to hold, longing to attract and to influence but unable to find any purchase, hating but powerless to revenge. Then yesterday was Halloween,
1: I said.
0: But today is All Saints, he answered, and. Kneeling down, he began to recite the great thanksgiving and gloria for the blessed departed. After a moment, shamefaced hesitation, I knelt behind him, repeating the sonorous, reassuring words. When we rose, he led me out through the priest's door into the area. There he turned on me. I'm sure it's all right now, he said. Don't have any misgiving, I beg. You saw, but you were not really touched. That man had great power and he roused and opened channels in order to reach far down that loosening those forces. Taking their still unresolved tensions, he might freeze them. Now that he has gone, those that remain still tied will relapse into their locked condition. You are surprised that I'm talking in this way. But is there any conclusion to draw? We have the evidence here in the actual objects and history of this place. And when we put these together with what we now know the man was doing, can we draw any other conclusion? (sighs) After all, the church I belong to believes in prayer. And every day I am bound to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the communion of saints and the life everlasting. Then, turning to me with a great friendliness, he concluded, Please don't think I'm being impertinent or unctuous. But it is really very obvious that you have been through a great strain. What's more, everything you say, I believe. And my job now, just now, is to reassure you. The door was opened and you looked through at the real struggle of life and death. Now it is closed, you are free to act as you will on full information that most people are granted this side of things. He held out his hands, well, I must be going down the hill, that telegram as to what to do about the funeral must be here by now, he waved his hand as he turned away, and don't forget an archdeacon may in the end be saved. Aura pro me. That's O-R-A-P-O-R-M-E. Ora pro me. I stayed up on the hill till lunchtime. I had no longer any dread of this chapel. As he said it, I realised that it was true. Perhaps more clearly than he did. I had seen An unsuspected force generated through what, one may say, with absolute exactness, was a terrific power. I had seen it raised to that pitch where it could tear open that callous, which life, using the queer analgesic we call time, spreads over its horrible wounds. I had seen with my own senses that things forgotten may remain. Remain because... Long, wrong, the actual twist, tear and abscess were never healed, never forgiven. They remain as a fistula, eating away under the surface and resulting, who knows, in all the horrors of war and disease, hatred and suffering that to us seem to spring from such absurdly small causes and provocations. I had seen that redemptive energy cut, as a surgeon cut, through that dead husk of skin and released the pus from underneath. I had seen horror first oozing and then spurting from that root of buried rock. But I had been simply an onlooker. I had no part in it really, at least unless I chose. The strange intercessor had really no business with me. That was not his job. I had not allowed to be present at a major operation done by a master surgeon. I had been placed where I could watch, but where I was really screened from all intervention. Yes, screened from all intervention. What happened after that? Oh, well, as far as the chapel was concerned, I never went into it again. When the great surgeon is dead, His operating theatre is merely of archeological interest. And remember, I had seen the past come to life. No, that's wrong. I had seen the eternal life going on in its passion and its purgatory. And so for me, the past and the contemporary were one. It is there, I now know, I now knew, sorry, I know that all reality goes on. Here are merely the symptoms, the consequences, There, there alone, real decision is taken and real causality can be altered. Yes, I stayed on my job during the war. The doctor used to joke with me. That air raid, what a neat piece of therapy. I wish I could claim I stayed it. It put you absolutely right. Do you know, I can say it to you now. I was really quite alarmed at one moment. I took a bet with myself that to do what I could, you'd break on it. And we couldn't afford it. We couldn't have afforded it. I can say it frankly. Now the end is in sight, and you're in better form than at the start. Not only were you a key man to this department, as we all know, but I, as doctor, know that you were the key to our psychological situation. The whole of this series of efforts looked up to you. If you had gone then as happens in suicide epidemics, and who knows, we might have been in, in for one of those. The thing springs like a contagion. And just that touch of actuality, so graciously granted by High Air Marshal uh, Goering, G O E R I N G. Put everything again on the level and brought your feet firmly onto the ground. You know, it's never any use giving a doctor an explanation save that which he has pitched on as his diagnosis. And what would he have made of the right one? Of course, had I given him that, why he had given me enough his confidence of his confidence about me to know that he would have had me in a mental home electro shock treatments every Sunday instead of my walk. I preferred my walk and my silence. And after the war now? Well, I don't know. It's late to start life again. But I can tell you that I'm not going back to my outpost in the empire, nor am I going to take a home job. I believe what I'm doing is looking for some small seminary where I can study. I keep on asking myself, was that glimpse I had of the real forces giving for nothing just to startle a casual passerby? And yet, what can I do about it? You can't suddenly turn yourself into a great brain surgeon because you have suddenly become aware of what what a frightful thing tumor on the brain can be and how surgery can help when nothing else can. But that's the timid side of my nature, trying to tell me that I needn't and can't do anything. When that gets too insistent, then I remind myself, I give the little beast a touch of shock treatment. For one thing I know, the little beast, a touch of shock treatment, sorry. For one thing I know, whether I know what I ought to do about it or no, that terror and horror are not the same thing. Horror springs from the defeated and craving disgust that shrinks back crying that life is too terrible. Fleeing from reality, swearing that existence has no meaning and had better stop, cursing God and without the guts to die, going off to huddle itself in some foul pocket of self-indulgence and finally neurotic and psychotic. Terror springs from the other other end of things. Terror is the realisation that life has meaning, but one so great, one that has to be so great that it may, can and does swallow up all that is hideous in its vast meaning, all death and suffering in its victory. And here's my last word. I know that we choose horror the false deliverance of disgust, because we fear the cost, the terrific cost of meaning. The way to the meaning that grasps everything and holds the whole in that final span where truth and beauty, suffering and ecstasy are one, the way to that, the only goal, is through terror. And there you go. The Chapel of Ease has been recorded, I've done, I've transcribed, (laughs) and it's not transcribed. Wow, that was long, I think that was nearly four hours long. Um, So that's a lot of listening, deep listening. I enjoyed reading that. Um, and now I'm going to eat my um, Chinese that I'm going to cook and the Blue Dragon Sashay. Um, so yeah, I'm going to hopefully get a nice picture of the Chabuco Church. That will be a fitting image for this episode. So thank you for listening. and may And may you continue listening to Pablo's channel. It's a very deep, deep world, Pablo's channel. Once you you come here, you certainly are taken to other dimensions.
1: So, with that, namaste.